0: Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture, the Negroni Talks are hosted at the Venetian Restaurant Ombre in Hackney and organised by architects Fourth Space with the assistance of Rob Fain and Bobby Jewel. The talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial, free-flowing debates found in the founder's Ciaccola European Cafe Society being fuelled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live and like the talks themselves with no frills and little or no editing to bring you the arguments of the evening, direct and unfiltered. Due to the coronavirus lockdown and the temporary closure of Ombra, this talk was hosted as an online event via Zoom so that we could continue the Negroni talk series as planned.
1: Hi, thanks for having me and thanks everyone for um, coming on a Tuesday evening. Um, I'm really looking forward to this evening's talk. I'm not going to pretend to have huge amounts of expertise on the subject but thankfully our panel do so um, in different ways though. I think One of the things about video games is that when I was a kid, you were either someone who played video games or you weren't. And um, I think the panel tonight, what I'm excited about is they demonstrate all these different ways of using and looking and playing with things. So I'll just go through who we've got tonight and then hopefully we can get going with having a conversation. So um, Will Wiles is the author of three novels, most recently, Plume. Um, In a former life when I was a design journalist, he was too so there are all kinds of worlds of space and fiction coming together in how I think about Will's work. Um, Alexandra Lang is a design critic. She's written for, I wanted to say, like all the design magazines that matter, and *Design*, where she holds uh, a column, but I also wanted to say the New York Magazine, the New Yorker, and the New York Times. That's just uh, a nice triptych. So a voice on design, definitely, but also has been writing about Play spaces and children's play spaces, and how whether or not the city is oriented around children. Um, obviously, right now, how much of the city has been accessible to children? Um, Alexandra's joining us from New York, so um, she can tell us a little bit about how life has been there. Um, Frederick helberg and Laura Lesmes from Space Popular joining us from Sweden. Um, I've worked with Space Popular recently, so I think. Um, I want to let them speak about their, their kind of interest in video games, but I guess working at the interface between virtual worlds and physical worlds, because they do make real buildings too, but they also um, are really interested in exploring these kind of blended physical digital interfaces and particularly behaviours in, in these different worlds. Um, Gregorius, from Shedworks. I'm sorry I can't pronounce your last name because I haven't got it up on my screen because I've closed this last minute. (laughs) I'm so sorry, that's really shit of me. Um, But Shedworks, you should check out, uh, make the kind of video games that I like to look at because they're so beautiful. I've no no real kind of gaming pedigree behind me, but there are some games that are just visually so seductive. And uh, I want to hear more about how your experience studying architecture has kind of taken you in through that. And Ivia Camp who's a recent graduate from Royal uh, Royal College of Arts uh, in architecture, who uses also, um, I think, a blend of design thinking, data, um, manipulation, and I guess conversations about identity in, in really, really interesting ways. I'm really excited to see what she does next. So, um, That's everyone we've got on the panel. I think everyone has slightly different um, intersections and ways of connecting to each other. By way of uh, kicking off then, I just wanna explain my background screen. So um, this was probably the first game that I got into when I was a kid. I don't know if anybody in the audience remembers this, but this was Hugo's Whodunit. Um, So it really appealed to me because it was a detective story, but it was the first one where you could make the character kind of, it felt like you could make the character do what you wanted to do in this world. You can kind of see maybe this, yeah. Next to my arm, somebody's trying to say kiss Penelope, because that's all you did in this game was you tried to get the main character to kiss the girls or like do naughty things with the French maid or like eat the chop or all sorts of stuff. So there was this real fun period where there was another world where you could make stuff happen. I think that was, um, the seductive aspect for me. Um, let me start with Will, because I think the way that I've read and heard you talking about sort of slightly fantasy spaces, it could go kind of different ways. How do you kind of, how do you come into video games? Where's your interest again?
2: Uh, well, I've played video games since my, um, since my parents got hold of a, a, a ZX81 with a, the little rubber keys um, sometime in the in the early or mid 80s and I played Horus Go skiing and Ant Attack and so on and I've, I've been playing them pretty much ever since for the about 35 years now um, it's kind of tragic to say um, but uh, I've recently written quite a lot about um, video games and landscapes uh, uh, talking about um, uh, games like minecraft and the witness and uh also shedworks game uh sable although that's only in, in prospect um and have uh written um for uh, a variety of magazines about that i i i, I have a kind of minor career in being the person who you go to to explain a com- development in computer games to um uh, to the audience that doesn't <laughs> doesn't play them so um i, I was explaining most recently uh, call of duty to um apollo um, the fine arts magazine uh, because there was a a, a, a um, important court decision involving call of duty being so you're the
1: translator so how does how do you do that how do you get people who don't really Want to know about computer games? Interested in computer games? What's the sell?
2: Well, I mean, it's extremely easy because they are they i mean, they're—they're they're real life essentially. You know, they're, they're, there's no there's no sell to it at all. You know, I mean, it's they get um, very uh, um, they, they 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 turn people off partly because of uh, recent developments around you know, uh, uh, um, uh, violent—I mean, you know, violence in games uh, um, turns people off and so on. But I mean, games are uh, multifarious. You know. Um, Uh, And um, even people who think they don't like games often tend to like some kind of games, you know, they think, oh, well, I don't like games. I do like Candy Crush on my phone, you know, or I don't like games, but I do like Minecraft or uh, or whatever, you know, uh, or The Sims or or whatever. Speaking of which, I I have a prop related to The Sims from my days when I did actually write about these all the time, which will steadily go go red as I um, get more and more hungry and tired. Uh, I've um, drifted off the subject. Yeah, I mean, you know, games um, have come to encompass an awful lot of all of human life, um, and um, I'm particularly interested in the ways that um, they uh, uh, create. Um, they can create uh, many of the emotions that we associate with with with, with art, um, yeah, in, including a sense of a sense of wonder, a sense of awe, um, mm-hmm. and fear, um, which uh, I think extends them beyond the, the, the realm of, 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 of mere entertainment, although there's nothing mere about entertainment. It's, it's no,
1: not. In, absolutely not. So, well, you mentioned Greg's game. Let me, let me take it over to say, uh, to Greg, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about Sable and also how you got to being somebody who makes independent video games in the shed.
3: Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I guess, uh, so i I started off studying architecture at the Barlow, but um, I kind of always started doing that degree, knowing that I didn't want to be an architect. I just did it because I thought the practice of designing architecture was really interesting. My dad's an architect, so I knew I didn't want to be an architect. Like I was a hundred percent so I always had this kind of um view to studying or looking at video games, or I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but um towards the end of my degree i started to look more at video games and i wrote my dissertation on on uh like interactive spaces and actually i when will was speaking just then one of the things that i really struggled with with my dissertation was uh interpreting the language of how you speak about video games for an audience of people who are going to mark an architecture paper, right? So it's hey. like something that I, re- I found really <laughs> difficult. We have terms when we talk about video games, stuff like Metroidvania, that uh, if you're someone who plays video games, it's like a, a term that carries a lot of weight and meaning, but it's just a portmanteau of two video game names. Uh, so like ha- how, when you try and convey the nuances of, of what that means, it, it can be quite a difficult thing. Um, so that was actually something that i thought about when we were talking about (laughs) interpreting games for a more general Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. audience um that maybe you know it i think depending on what topic specifically you're talking about uh becomes easier or harder but um but yeah i think it's a really interesting point uh but yeah what are you
1: trying to do with sable are you trying to create something that's more welcoming for because for instance i look at it and i'm seeing the references i make to it are the they're largely to do with the beautiful illustrations. So I'm thinking about comics like Crazy Cat or the illustrations from Little Prince or, or some kind of strange yeah. sci-fi background.
3: Yeah, this- there's definitely that component to it where we're trying to get people who maybe don't necessarily look at video games to look at it. Um, I mean, that's definitely one factor. We, you know, we try and do that with the game design itself as well. So we're making it a non-violent game. Um, you know, that was a choice that we made for a number of reasons. One being just viability like it's hard to make a you have to animate every uh creature that you're fighting you have to animate the character to do combat but and it's also a design practice in and of itself that i really like but we thought you know to make the game more accessible that was a choice that we would try and keep in mind and so uh that is one element of designing games to be more accessible is to okay if we're gonna have this more action-oriented thing or we we're gonna keep it on a more turn-based or uh, player-controlled timeline, stuff like Mm -hmm. that, um, can have a real impact on accessibility. And that's something that we definitely have in mind, and I think the aesthetic feeds into that, um, definitely. But on the flip side, I think really realistic-looking games in a lot of instances can feel more, or it can feel like those are slightly more popular or appealing because they don't put people off at first glance. And sometimes when you have something really stylized, if someone just doesn't mesh with it, they're not going to want to sit down and look at it for 16 hours. So,
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, this yeah. sort of fidelity with the real world or, or lack thereof, this is something that, um, yeah, I want to invite Frederick and Lara and possibly appear as well, because I think you've both, you've all played with this in terms of how much fidelity to the real world is necessary, how much um, you can push that and what you're trying to do with that. Maybe if I ask Frederick and Lara um we've talked about how freaky it gets when things are too realistic or maybe you know anything you want really about your experience with gaming and what sort of thing you want to um you look for when you're looking for games but maybe you could pick up there
4: yeah i kind of got got excited from will's description of kind of um back background uh, because it kind of becomes so relevant i think in many ways and obviously we we work Together completely, and we teach together, and we've been doing this for the past 10 years. And a lot of our work overlaps um, with interests and skills and uh, kind of theories that involves video games. But then our our backgrounds are different, of course, because like just like Will, in my case, I um, it was a big breaking point in my life when I started getting interested in design and architecture when I was like. 20 and and said i have to stop playing video games now because otherwise i won't be able to do anything in my life (laughs) because i spent just uh, from a different starting point here just a a simple nintendo 8-bit but that was that And skateboarding was my i didn't really
5: care about anything
4: (laughs) else than that and 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 video games
5: whereas in my case i was only getting the nintendo 8-bit on the the breaks from my brother Very contested. Uh so I my background was more on I started with early computer games in particular one that I don't think anyone will know that was called Carmen San Diego, which was about traveling through the wait, world. wait, wait, your game no, was called yeah, yeah, Carmen San Diego. <laughs> what did Carmen San Diego do? Which you you uh, she, she was looking as like an investigative uh, okay. uh, game and uh it involved traveling around and clues and it was, uh, I, was very I was, I was very young and I don't think I fully understood it, which is also one of these uh, magical moments where you're just trying to do things <laughs> but you don't really know what you're doing.
4: But then we, we um, um, in different ways, uh, when we were both, we both studied at the Architectural Association in London. And I studied um, really early on when I was in my second year with Alistair Gill and Veronica Smith who introduced us that year to game engines. And um, that was, so I had a few years there where I, I kind of got my shit together and and, and uh, got into architecture school and started working with Unreal Engine, which is not then it was the super obscure thing um, mm. that gamers used to build to model their own their own worlds. Um, and that is now our primary tool to make the, the virtual films that we do. Every single film we've, we've done, we've used that tool, um, which is I mean it says something that whole trajectory of of just there's hundreds thousands but just with that game engine or that that craft of how to make virtual environments and, and games that now is is applicable to freaking you know the, the weather channel uses unreal engine to visualize uh weather patterns and stuff like that it's now used and and architects um engineers use it for all sorts of stuff but uh yeah, um,
5: yeah I, wanna... I think that People is working with more and more with real-time engines, which is definitely going to change quite a few things. However, uh, that does not mean that people have an understanding of um, uh, game theory uh, or, or, or gameplay, um, which I think will be quite important. That, well, you know, in, in, in a, At a very basic level in the making of our VR films, we find that we need to introduce some aspects not of play, but of engagement uh, and mm-hmm. affordances, etc. However, I mean, nothing in comparison to to what what uh, Gregorius uh, is working with. I mean, we at a very basic level, uh, just work with glimpses of I that. Feel,
1: I thought you guys would have things to say also because of the different experience of being at architecture school and, and, you know, how you're using these tools and, and these things that you came across. Um, but I just wanted to carry on with the sorts of freedom between reality and unreality. I wanted to ask, uh, Ibier, how you managed to exploit that in your work or play with it, where you're talking about real data and sometimes quite serious issues, Mm. um, but you're sort of using quite a playful, speculative um, game-like atmosphere to to tell these stories. How did you come across this and what what kind of freedom does it afford you?
6: Um, Yeah, like I think what, I, I never really kind of um kind of realized that it was like gaming engines that I was using when I was kind of using um kind of augmented reality. I think I kind of came at it at like such an amateur kind of like point of view um where I was kind of um collecting kind of street data, like kind of like scanning streets and um people and um kind of um objects, and then um, I think within my work I'm quite interested in like contrasting territories or kind of um, like problems with technology or um, mistakes that happen, Um, I'm quite, um, I think I, I began quite interested in like the presence of technology in West Africa. Um, so um, I actually wrote my dissertation about kind of these um, gaming huts um, around Freetown um, in Sierra Leone, where these kind of, um, they're, they're kind of PlayStation centres. And um, I was sort of kind of really fascinated with these really busy kind of like spaces um, where like people would go in and pay like kind of a couple of to to play. And then like what happens in those spaces when there's a power cut or something and um, then those places are then kind of obviously not in use or I don't know so I, um, I think we've... With... Hold on let me
1: just so they're like gaming cafes or yeah not arcades but like gaming cafes I guess would be more the scale
6: yeah and so I like...
1: guess there's like a social life around that too
6: definitely definitely a social life around it and um, I think the way that a space kind of, um, kind of uh, transforms I, I think um so that's that's kind of like what I was quite interested in in terms of um the public space um having these gaming um kind of huts and um I think also um some of the titles they would have these titles on the outside that would um one was called emergency um sports center so yeah. you know, I love the fact that it was like a an, they they used the words emergency in the title because it's 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 obviously um it's 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 the real importance to, to like kind of people in Freetown to to have these gaming stations and I think um so I wrote my dissertation kind of about the contrast of physical and the digital in the yeah. sense of West African landscape and then in my work um I kind of use the um the photo scan but I use it in quite um a kind of low rendered way cuz kind of thinking about obviously w- w- with gaming or like um, with design when you render something it uses an immense amount of power and electricity so i kind of do it on a lower setting so the f- models um made would be very distorted or um yeah and I, yeah that's kind of a lot of the basis of my work is kind of really um like the, the aesthetic and also kind of critiquing, um, what, what some of these tools are designed for and how, um, different environments kind of use
1: them. Yeah. So. I mean, I've been really kind of thinking about data manipulation quite a lot, obviously in recent political times, how data has been used or misused is, uh, and the way you describe it being, um, through your work, how you kind of morph images and manipulate images. I can see the kind of critique related there. Um, gosh, I also want to know more about why, why it is that gaming space is so seductive in, in West Africa and how it's a completely different kind of seduction. It's not alone in your room in the dark where you're connected to necessarily to hundreds of people, but something very, very different. Alexandra, I'm curious, do you play
7: video games? Is it something you're witnessing your children use? <laughs> Um I, yeah, well I keep trying to play video games. Um I have a 12 year old son and he would love it if I played video games, but he's kind of um he despairs of me at this point. He called me a button masher recently because <laughs> I started playing a game and That's I'm just like push all this- the buttons, I just kind of freak out. Um sometimes I can be successful with that technique, but more often not. So yeah, I don't I don't really think that I have the gaming gene, but um as you mentioned earlier, I've done a lot of work on um, like design for play. And I had a book that came out two years ago called the design of childhood. And I got really interested in video games when I was writing that book. Because if I mean, if you talk to like nine kids out of 10 today, like what is the play space of a you know, 2019 20, 2020 20, childhood, it is video games. And so I felt like I had to understand them you know from a design perspective, but also really as a social space. And actually the like the gaming huts are really interesting because they're like a physical manifestation of the um, virtual spaces that kids make for themselves. Um, and I think this has come up even more, um, during quarantine. Like in some ways, I think that teens and tweens are better positioned than adults to carry on a digital social life because a lot of them have already, um, you know, created fan communities. Right. (laughs) Um, and like my son, he's 12. So he's really like at the young end for all of these things, but he was already on discord, which is this gaming app. And that, um, allowed him to kind of immediately like pick up on a lot of the friendships and create like new places to meet his friends um, as soon as he wasn't allowed to see them in person.
1: Well, I think there's like, I can imagine, I don't have children, but I can imagine concerns around, you know, some of the games that might be released or some of the activities that might be seductive to a 12 year old boy and what have you but i guess there's two ways that you guys can choose to take the conversation i guess there's um there's the sort of realm of fantasy that pre-made worlds give so like as i think as greg was saying earlier you can use almost a sort of worlding shorthand if you're familiar with certain games and you can sort of When you're referring to games you're referring to so much more like a whole culture of of things so i think it's it might be really interesting to talk about these alternate worlds and kind of how present they are in our real life existence but then i also think we're talking about a new era of gaming space now where people are also able to create it and people are also able to shape these different spaces that they're in i think there's a different um moment we're in now with gaming where our expectations are much more but much more participatory than perhaps they might have been earlier. Yes, I don't know if any I, of you guys I, want to pick
5: that up Yes I, I on Alexandra what you were saying I, I very much uh, relate uh, to that and especially the importance during quarantine proof the social space that these games offer and the possibility for uh, that real time engines are offering together with WebXR, which people who might not understand the term, it just means like websites that are three dimensional and that are social. And I have had the tremendous pleasure of introducing my uh, six and four year old nephew and niece to to WebXR by making very, very simple worlds for them. Uh, the, the first one was for my nieces, um, birthday, uh, where uh, she was in lockdown in Spain, and and we went in a treasure hunt, all the family together from where we were scattered uh, around the world. So uh, it was incredible how how much they enjoyed it. And then the great thing, they keep calling it the video game, which is, <laughs> I mean, it's just a social uh, a social space. And now um, I started building some very basic tools for them to build things together with me. And they don't understand email, they don't understand links, they don't understand what the internet is, but they are being introduced to it through creating it. And, and I'm starting to see an incredible value to, so I'm becoming obsessed with introducing them to kind of the back end before they begin to play. And they, they have not played any video game <laughs> before. <laughs> so yeah. it's quite wonderful to think that, like, what happens if um, if you unleash that. Potential. What, what will they do when they are 12? Because uh, yeah, then
4: you can meet in Fortnite or or anywhere. But if you have a someone who's that young, this was out of necessity because literally they were in in super lockdown and we couldn't see them. But we can't meet a four-year-old in or five-year-old in Fortnite, <laughs> even if they technically yeah. could. You don't want to bring them into no, that space, yeah. right? So which is why we had built like a closed space that where we could make sure that everything was nice and friendly and yeah
7: mm. well my um my 12-year-old actually built sort of a scavenger hunt set up for my nine-year-old in minecraft which they both use and uh, then my nine-year-old also got invited to a birthday party where they all all played this other game called roblox together which is like but... a robot block game um and again like Roblox is definitely for younger children. So it's like by invite only and there are all these kind of safety protocols. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's like you, you guys have the power to make these very simple systems you know, for your niece and nephew, but there, yeah, there are really like age differentiated games that kids can come on and like find the platform together. Um, and I think a lot of those you know, are creating these super active communities right now just because, yeah. yeah, you can't craft at the birthday party, but you can play Roblox together.
6: <laughs> yeah.
5: And then on what Evie uh, was talking about is like how do you, I mean, the, how much we can play with, how do we create that and that link to reality? I think it's super interesting. Uh, how do you, like we're trying to introduce them to mapping, like they print out uh, texture maps and draw on them. And then we just put them onto 3D models for them, which I was thinking is similar to what you kind of are describing, this like messing up with. Yeah, like,
6: um, it's been quite fun to kind of, um, kind of play with textures of of what is scanned and stuff and kind of what's really interesting is so um, I I, I use all the time um, photogrammetry like photo scan. And um, it's, it's quite interesting how Um, If you kind of try to do like a photogrammetry where you take those photographs of something that's moving, it kind of really distorts and picks up other kind of elements and maybe um, things that were moving kind of disappear. So um, I I was using that a lot with the manner that I was like scanning in like a very messy kind of blurry pictures. And then Mm -hmm. the 3D model that appears um, is, very very kind of organic and distorted and it's it's kind of like a um quite an interesting kind of data trace of what was there in that moment in time um and uh kind of using photoscan um if you kind of look at it online um it's kind of the examples that are shown of photo scanner of maybe statues or kind of kind of historic buildings which people tend to scan but the way that i was using them were in like a kind of um like middle of town in Freetown and um, really kind of um, contrasting territories where there was like keke is moving and so um, that um, kind of playfulness I think um, in then using augmented reality um, I then use augmented reality to then put that in real life and you can really see the gaps and um, of kind of information that was kind of mistaken or glitched um, around that.
3: How do these spaces in Freetown compare to, like, arcade spaces that you would have had uh, quite populated here 20 years ago, 10 years ago? I mean, they've deteriorated in popularity. You look at somewhere like the Trocadero in central London.
8: Yeah,
3: it's dead um, now, it doesn't exist, but, yeah.
6: Yeah, like, um, I actually spent so much time in Trocadero as a child; it's, um, it's quite funny to <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so um, I went into some of the gaming spaces. Um so it's it's quite funny. Um there was one down the road from where me and my partner live and um it it was actually um very much like a living room. Um it kind of had two um benches and then like maybe three or four TV screens and then, like maybe an Xbox um and then a PlayStation and um my partner um like played it and played with one of the young boys that was there and it was really really relaxed and um Kind of, I think um, maybe maybe a bit more approachable. I don't really know, but in Tropezero, as a child, it would be very rare that I would actually play with a stranger. Yeah. I think. And so there, it kind of seemed a lot more informal. Kind of, but then also almost like being in someone's living room as well, with the kind of pillows on 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 the bench. Um,
1: yeah. Well, how much does it cost? Like, what's the what's the kind of equivalent
6: cost? Like-
1: uh, I'm, I can't really remember and um, I think like like can you, is it the price of a soft drink or is it the price of dinner or is it the price oh, of
6: it's it's super cheap maybe it, it would be our equivalent of 5p or something okay
1: so it's yeah. super affordable then for people who nec- wouldn't necessarily have the yeah. systems
6: at home and stuff my partner just texts me saying it's, te- it's 10p <laughs> <laughs> thank you yeah um. <laughs> but yeah really affordable and um approachable spaces actually
8: yeah,
3: I think I think that's interesting. Like, Trocadero maybe was like a the scale was quite big, and so you went with you met people that you already knew there rather than I. I mean, I don't know. I didn't. I wasn't there loads, but like maybe that's somewhere where you went with people you knew. Whereas maybe your smaller, more local arcades were places where you would. Uh, and I think in fact this probably was happening before before I was spending time in in arcade spaces was where you would meet other people by playing the same, standing there playing the same game for hours and hours on end. And someone would come challenge you, like fighting games were kind of like a, from my understanding, like a really pivotal uh, type of game for those sorts of interactions. And I I guess also the types of games that you're playing. So I don't know if the types of games that they had in those spaces versus uh, the setup of those spaces, I think could be like, uh, I don't know I don't know I'm, I'm interested i haven't. I'm, 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 I'm curious to, to know really whether understand. you
1: felt like they were gendered spaces or were they kids spaces or grown-up spaces because yeah. I think I think about the contemporary video games world I don't really think about children particularly um maybe that's because I live with an adult gamer but um but yeah I I don't know if the if either of the spaces you're describing now, whether it's in, in Sierra Leone or the Trocadero, whether they felt like gendered spaces or in any way hostile to you guys growing up or whether it was just magic land.
6: Yeah, maybe um, for, for me, so the, um, the gaming um, pan body, in, um, they call it pan body because it's kind of made from the tin, the corrugated tin, but um, it, it's, 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 I, it's pretty much a, a space that is predominantly male. Um, and that's another thing of, um, maybe, um, in, in, in my experience, like I would go to Nigeria for summers and my cousins would be playing kind of PlayStation and, you know, the girls wouldn't kind of play the more kind of like hang out and watch or something. So I don't know if that's just kind of my, the, the experience in West Africa from Nigeria and Sierra Leone, but, um, I think in Trocadero it was very like kind of mixed, um, kind of say and very interactive as well because it was different it was different types of games that I remember there. Mm. More like Funfair games and then oh but there were maybe more I, I'm, you the
3: cinema there as well and then access to other spaces yeah, too. So it was true. like a space between spaces as well, I feel like as well as a destination in of of itself.
9: But um
1: speak to will a bit more about i think i read somewhere where we we were talking or you were talking we were talking he is the reader and he is the writer we were talking about i think fantasy and horror and um and I, i guess a need for those sorts of spaces that can't necessarily exist in real world but i mean that's what i sometimes appreciate about gaming environments is that they are environments where you can live in different structures, different environments, and the more immersive the better, really. What do you think, Will? Do you think, how do you think fantasy and fiction relate to video games and our need for them?
2: <laughs> um, leading,
1: leading question, eh? <laughs> uh,
2: well, a, a, a quite a broad question. Um, I, I I mean, just to speak to the um, question of, of, of collaborative, I mean, you know, of, of, of games as social spaces, it, it, I, <laughs> I think you, 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 it can't be overstated, really, because Um, The success of of Minecraft and and Fortnite in in particular is is entirely down, I mean, it can be baffling to outsiders, but it's entirely down to them being social spaces, and we're very lucky with Minecraft, it's such a um, a collaborative social space, but um, uh, you know, it it doesn't center violence um, uh, in its gameplay, but the, um, uh, I found at home with, with, um, my my, my eldest child is is seven, and he's um, uh, enjoys games on a not, on a fairly basic level still, but on a number of levels. I mean, he enjoys playing, you know, we play Dr. Mario or whatever, we have a, a Nintendo emulator. So um, we, we've been enjoying playing some classic Mario and things like that. But um, uh, also he will enjoy sort of the collaborative playing where he'll essentially sit next to me and we'll, you know, play a puzzle game together. Um, there's a game called Opus Magnum, which involves making very simple devices and that sort of thing is very fun to play. You know, talking about what you're seeing on the screen and and um, solving the problem together. Uh, you know, games like polybridge Bridge and Besieged and so on, where it's built about making contraptions. These are games that that, that work beautifully just as as parent and child. Um, uh, you know, discussing discussing solutions. And there's also weirdly, he enjoys playing some games passively, um, uh, such as um, I mean, not play, playing at all in the sense that he doesn't really enjoy playing Minecraft that much because there's an awful lot of sort of grinding away to get materials and so on. But he's, he, he loves to watch me play Minecraft to, the, to an extent that it can be quite annoying. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, he'll, he'll quite happily sit next to um, me and, and, and talk about what I'm doing uh, because, uh, you know, I've, I've had the patience to, to get a, you know, significant kind of structure off the ground, or whatever, and, and, and he'll enjoy having, you know, something already made there. But um, the other thing is, you know, um, the more uh, kind of like challenging games, which are kind of more sort of um, atmospheric and, um, you know, which is bringing me around to, to, to horror, um, you know, he will enjoy as a, a, a passive experience as well. Although some of them are a bit um, uh, grown up and that's that's games like uh, uh, Dead Space 2 um, uh, and um, the uh, uh, some of these more sort of atmospheric things. And one of the amazing one of the strengths of games is that is that is the, is the, the way that they wield um, the environment as part of the experience, and this is something that happens within within horror movies in particular. Um, uh, you know, uh, places. You know, movies, classic movies like yeah, like Alien or, or, or The Shining have the, the corridors and, and confined spaces and um, uh, you know atmospheric repeating spaces of, of the hotel and the Nostromo as important um, uh, tools within them. But they um, uh, games uh, you know lean very heavily into that and, and and all their um all their horror is is environmental uh, there's um, they, they, they they build their um, atmosphere almost entirely from uh, the way that the that the environment is arranged around you and uh, and things changing within it which is is, is is immensely um i find i think interesting from an architectural point of view um, i don't know if that uh, goes some way to answering the um, your question but um uh sorry a game like the evil within um is 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 within a is within a house um it's mm-hmm. set within um uh within a, a, an artist's house um and it. um
1: uh this is one you play started, alone i hope with that name.
2: yeah, yeah okay. you, you started um very uh, quietly you're just you're just walking around it's kind of sinister it's nighttime there's a storm outside um and um the environment um, uh, uses some quite familiar I- I effects to, to generate fear, to de- generate tension. There's a, um, you know, a, a door which was open slams shut behind you. Something falls off the wall w- 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 as you go past, and so on. You know, these are these are these are tropes mm. that are familiar from, from horror films. But um, it, it, you only um, uh, begin to um, kind of really experience the the the, 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 the pleasure of the game. When you've kind of built a mental map of the house, and it and it starts to change, you know that you've been through an area before, and it looked different, and 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 it's expanded. There are there are doors that 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 that, that weren't there before. You know uh, that the corridor has extended, and the the environment continues to mutate around you, um, and that's that 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 is 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 beginning to get into it into a purely environmental effect that is nevertheless immensely atmospheric and um uh is is, is really only possible in, in 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 games
1: let me throw this to greg then um how do you, so on your website it says you're the architecture visual kind of space guy and and dan is the sort of programming person but how do you think your architectural skills play into, like, I mean, it's it's amazing to hear that you had no intention of being an architect and you kind of knew in your stomach that it might be going this way towards gaming. But I guess I want to ask slightly more directly about some of the things that Will was talking about, about how spatial tools might be used to create these atmospherics and then that's sort of yeah. a world that you're playing with in a way that you would never really be able to in real life, right?
3: Yeah. I mean, I've always been interested in storytelling, even with like when I was designing supposed. Well, they were never real buildings, but they were like meant to be real buildings as an architect student. Um, and so I was always I was always interested in narrative world building, like constructing storylines, and I think that's what games really allow you to do in a kind of more for your job. Uh, whereas architecture, you, you do get architects that do that, but, um, I feel like just practically it's less common. Um, like you're very fortunate if you get to do that. Most people, uh, tend to be working with a client who has very specific needs and, you know, helping them, uh, express or, or live in a certain way is really important. But with games, mm-hmm. I, I find it really, yeah, I really enjoy that kind of storytelling and, and working. Like, I, I guess it's a lot of like, Uh, psychological guesswork so it's kind of like oh I think the player is going to come from here and so these are when the architectural tech you know like you get your classic like compress expand like creating viewpoints what have you that you get in architecture anyway but you're trying to do you're trying to encourage players to move through spaces or interact with spaces in particular ways but without kind of uh, without taking their hand and being like no you have to walk through this door right here please just like you have to so there's this like looseness to that that i think is very architectural and very uh tied to the um the psychology of the player themselves Um, but also the abilities that you give the player like uh, when you design a building you always keep in mind like the capabilities of human and and so there's a kind of template for that but then that template gets modified based on like uh you know if someone's disabled in some way you know if they if they have to navigate the world through a wheelchair or if they're blind or deaf you know you might create accommodations for that or design a, a structure for that and uh with games you're designing the kind of ability set of the player so can they climb up walls can they jump can they crawl like all these are abilities that you mm. choose to give or not give the player um, and so when you start to do that as well like Making those decisions plus the psych- psychology of the player interacting with the, desi- the tool set that you've given them is like a really complex kind of.
8: Um,
1: Let me ask you a cheeky question. Because like, that sounds, because world building, I mean, look architects or the architecture students that i work with i think are generally intending to make the world a better place with their work and with their design thinking yeah um but it's a lot of control right you are making a lot of decisions as you say kind of on the basis of psychology that you're interpreting interpreting other people i'm wondering if there are games that you've come across or that you've played where you've thought "Ooh, i wouldn't have done that or any kind of um temptation maybe to to make worlds work because those are ethical decisions of what you allow people to do and what not to do are there any games where you think that's really pushing what's okay yeah i mean there are some games i mean yeah
3: come to mind where you have to like there's like one game that comes to mind where well there's a few where basically there's this term called ludonarrative dissonance where you like make the player do something that feels uh separate to like what the story you're trying to tell is and sometimes some clever designers will use that as a tool um like there's a game called spec ops that has you uh bomb a crowd of what you think are like uh enemy uh combatants and then it turns out that they were like uh they were civilians or something and then the rest of the game is about your character kind of uh Struggling to deal with and fading. Yeah, they've
0: done, yeah.
3: Yeah, and and
2: like
0: Hmm. trying to
3: make the player feel feel guilty for doing that. But then it doesn't work if you, as the player, realize, oh, these are civilians. I don't actually want to bomb these civilians. But the game is like, well, you can't go anywhere until you bomb these civilians. And you're just like, well, this has totally failed on every level right now (laughs) because you're forcing me to. Do this thing that I don't want to do. and Okay,
1: and... once you understand the system, then I guess it's not quite as horrific because it is just a sort of exactly. arbitrary sort of mechanism yeah. in that sense. But I guess it's, it's interesting.
3: Trick to everything that you do as a game designer that like, as soon as you explain it, it, it can kind of fall away. And like,
1: mm-hmm.
3: uh, it's definitely like the scariest thing as a designer is watching someone kind of like clip through a wall and then out of your world. And like, oh shit, like, everything i spent months and fucking months years building programming
1: and building bullshit. yeah yeah
3: exactly and
1: uh and now they're in some random space where i can't control anything exactly. yeah i think some architects feel that way too um <laughs> <laughs> about the of sites and all sorts of things i'm gonna um throw over i think we've got a few more minutes together and then i'm hoping that we can take questions from
5: all and I, uh, I i wanted to go back to some of the things that um that uh, Gregorius and we were saying more. Yeah, in, I was just going to ask
1: you guys about like the civic space stuff that you've been thinking about, but anything you uh, want to ask uh, them? Yeah,
5: about. I was going to say, I, I think um, in the whole notion of like how, well, the, the effect of the, that the environment has in you, I mean, of course, the, 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 the legibility of the references, uh, I think it's incredibly important, and it's a question that comes up a lot, someone in the in the um, audience was um asking about how much fidelity um one needs now, I, I think that's really interesting but th- there is one particular uh vr game that uh that left me and you as well i think completely struck and completely open new ways uh in in this like sort of relationship of the subject to the environment which is um, super hot vr where you, the speed at which you move controls the speed at which, uh, the pace of the world. So um, it's a shooter game, uh, which mm. from the second thing that you were talking about, there are lots of issues with that. However, it's incredibly engaging in the sense that everything is, in, is quite abstract, so quite low fidelity. However, um, you are becoming hyper aware of the movements of your body because everything that is happening around you moves at according to your speed so if you move very fast the world moves very fast but if you if you freeze and don't move at all then the world freezes and and that i think is an area that of course has been explored more and more now um with the introduction of of vr and the tracking of the body um but where i think that there is uh, i felt like a whole a, a sort of a whole new door opens to the design of the environments, the design of the architecture and the interaction um, of the player with not just the architecture, but the world as a whole. And, and I thought that was incredibly um, And the whole new door powerful. opens
4: up also to the point that Will was talking about with relationship to horror games, because because obviously the, the transition is is slow and not not it's not going to be like a big break, but obviously a lot of games are now immersive with using headsets and also other other things like that, which brings this whole thing to a completely different level. We also um been playing and had the pleasure of reviewing the first game ever, Half-Life Alex, which is the most expensive and most well-made VR game ever made, which is a kind of 25-hour more cinematic experience. It's not it's not social in any way. It's you're you're very much on your own. <clears throat> um, and you wear a headset and you're a character exploring this, this terrifying world, um, which is very, very cinematic. I think one, one thing, just come back to the point that you were maybe bringing up, Shumi, which also some parts in the chat has been bringing up, um, dealing with issues of, of uh, accessibility and civic issues, perhaps, mm-hmm. um, which I think is something that we see us quite separate now as also some comments about social media and the social aspects of gaming generally and i think we may be through having learned these incredibly sometimes creative and fascinating areas as are separate like social media is one world gaming as one world and within gaming there are thousands of different worlds that don't really uh, mash up so much but of course they're having such incredibly enormous impacts on the world um, in ways that i mean at least we think we will start to need to start to think about in in ways that do not only revolve around market driven kind of you know the gaming industry is is uh, you know, surpassed the, the film world more than a decade ago and there's still very little discussion around how it actually affects us uh and if 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 ever will there be a moment when we need to somehow not intervene but think about them slightly more you know we talk about what we allow our children to do etc but more than that maybe there's a, a way that we need to start to value them but also to regulate them potentially um, yeah. not just Some, st-
5: someone was yeah. asking about the uh, uh, potential overlaid or augmented reality I yeah. Think,
1: yeah i mean i wanted to just before we open it we have a couple of minutes but um really aware that i'm speaking to alexandra in brooklyn in new york right now where public space and a kind of contestation of of space in real life is really kicking off in in ways that um hasn't really happened in in the uk yet and i'm wondering there are all these like spaces of identity that are being um discussed at the moment i'm wondering if you see any potentials Or whether your kids are kind of navigating these sorts of issues because you can't necessarily go out and be with people in the ways that one might want to be or expect to be for reasons of health uh for reasons of other sorts of safety at the moment i don't know how do you see um either social issues mapping onto virtual spaces or or maybe it's about how we learn to deal with different kind of
7: paradigms well um i was actually i was gonna wanted to chime in anyway just about kind of like vr and civic space because um i was a guest critic for a studio last year at yale um that was about well it was supposed to be about designing play space but a lot of the students actually didn't want to do that but one one of the students ended up creating kind of um like a vr platform for community engagement about what should be in the space and so and because they were seeing, um, they were kind of looking at the problem of community meetings and, you know, how do we get more voices involved? Like how do mm. we achieve great, greater equity in the input that you get at community meetings? And they were it's thinking, future. okay, well, the, like the future is virtual. The future is people are maybe more comfortable in an online meeting than in an offline meeting. And so they created this um, VR tool to kind of tour the, the, the contested space essentially and then um, get input on the different proposals for it and i was kind of blown away by that because it's like as as people were discussing earlier these tools are incredibly powerful for modeling design in ways that are so far beyond like typical architectural models and so that students were able like in the context of the studio could kind of try to make a community engagement platform Mm -hmm. that could model the space in three dimensions i thought was really important and great, and I and I think that like one of the things that people are talking about in Brooklyn now is um, how have we gotten so many spaces that are supposed to be for the you know for the community without the input of the actual community living there, mm-hmm. um, and you know most recently it's been talking about bike lanes, and it's like who gets the bike lanes, mm-hmm. are the bike lanes safe to use if they're being heavily policed or is it just like another way that you know black and brown people like come in for more um policing so all of this i think um there's you know there's potential for online platforms to break up some older patterns right um but there has to be yeah there always has to be this kind of back and forth between the real world and the virtual world and that's mm-hmm. the tricky part
1: hmm that's i think that's really interesting i i have to throw this open but just before i do again um if i just wanted to ask if you thought on this matter on the sort of slightly more civic political speculative matter if you felt um like gaming or virtual spaces were let's say spaces where you felt more able to operate than than real work as, as a sort of recent architecture graduate. I'm very aware that there's a few students in the audience. And, and I guess I just wanted to
6: prompt you a, a little bit on that. Um, yeah, I feel as though um, kind of the the digital kind of realm, um, like I've just been using it so much um, just because of um, kind of accessibility and that and like kind of the idea of, um, it's kind of, there, there are a lot of, um, I feel like it's very available at the moment And in terms of kind of coming up with, with projects and, um, kind of teaching yourself new tools, like all of the, um, like a lot of the, um, softwares like kind of Unreal and Unity and stuff like that, are like I, I find them like super like kind of available at at the moment because you can like download Unity for free and, and things like that. And, um, but then again, in, in terms of like kind of, putting ideas over to the public i i've been using um spark ar which was which, which is um kind of a plug or or something linked to um facebook and instagram and that was kind of to put ideas like um like filters out and like kind of get people mm-hmm. to play around with filters on instagram and um Actually, I soon after got got hacked and deleted off Facebook after using that. But um, I don't know whether that, like that kind of um, using, like all of these softwares which are so accessible for augmented reality or for um, kind of coming up with a little kind of game on Unity has been like really um, brilliant for for my practice. And I think some some of, of kind of the recent graduates as well who have been using um, Unreal. And so, yeah, yeah I, I feel like it, it's like comes a, a in. whole new world,
1: yeah. I teach undergraduates who will come in wanting to build new worlds and then finding that the real world just won't let them. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, okay, on that note, I'm gonna, there's like all sorts of discussion fomenting in the chat box. Uh, lots of people with lots of things to say and ask. So um, I'm gonna hopefully be able to throw this open and you'll be ready to ask your questions. So yeah, the chat
5: box is where it's at. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's blowing up,
1: and we have half an hour. So, who wants to go first? Does anyone want to volunteer? Stick your hands up in the chat box. Aubrey, you've been you've been quite vocal. Is there anyone you want to ask someone something specific? Let me see if I can unmute
10: you, Aubrey. Uh yeah. I, can you hear me?
1: Yeah, that's good. Yeah.
10: Uh, yeah i don't I mean, I don't have any real specific questions. I'm here as a game developer, and I'm really interested to hear from the architecture students and the architects about like how how gaming has has influenced their work like rob uh, brought up a question just now about uh the architecture the architectification of gaming and maybe uh, are are we starting to game of gamify, gamify architecture? And I think about that a lot as a lighting designer and like, what ways can we get the the users of a space to interact with it? What what sort of um, interactability can we have? And usually like the light switch is number one, right? You can't move the stairs, you can open the door, you know, and, and how can we use that to create um, more interesting spaces, more engaging spaces for people, whether it's in real life or, you know, in games. So that's I, the... i'm just interested from hearing from people i have yeah great that's all. okay
1: well are there any responses to that from any of the architect designers maybe i don't know greg or frederick and laura or IBA. were there any kind of game spaces that are really influential what do you think about the gamification of architecture or the ar- architecturing of game worlds is this something you've noticed uh, no, well
4: I, I think i mean from our perspective of being you know not I wouldn't really call us gamers, even though we do our best to try and and um play as much as we have time for, but we definitely feel uh not just with ourselves and people in our generation that might have played games, but even with our students who are younger than us um you know architecture students that this kind of settings where you have like architects in this case we're maybe not all architects but in some ways we're maybe connected to architecture in some way or another but it's like we brought together a bunch of class, classical musicians and we talk we're talking about a completely different modern music genre that we're not really familiar with we have Gregory here that actually makes games but um I think in a way there's so much that architects and architectural students and academia don't understand at all really about, about the game world and the game industry and I think a lot about that is really great that you're here, Audrey. And uh, we, Audrey, it would be interesting to hear later on what you what you do. um But one big problem that we know that uh, architects often find being late to the game uh, is is that the gaming world is already so incredibly developed as as an art form, as an industry, as a marketplace. And uh, our friend James Telefoster put up an exhibition at Arctis a couple of years ago uh, on the gaming phenomena of the gaming industry in Sweden. And then he told us that many of the gaming companies, they weren't really interested in exhibiting at the National Design Museum. It was like a big honor for m- many other people. They're like, we're busy making games. I don't know why should we show our work in a National Design and Architecture Museum? Yes.
1: I thought it was interesting actually, sorry. Sorry, just to say that I thought it was interesting that um, that game show, the, just that one curator was interested in that game show and then a very affective show that's going on right now by ASMR. I think there's something connected in what we're talking about here of like completely immersive, especially the games you were talking about Lara, where it's it's much more to do with bodies in space, that there's, I think there is potential for kind of spatial discussion that isn't taking place in architecture school or traditional architecture. Sorry, I cut you off, you can't come in.
5: I, and I, I think the greatest value of, of um, playing and looking at games is the constant reminder that uh, experience you know, its is the single, for me, the single most important factor, of course, very closely followed by budget and um, other sorts of uh, practical issues that can immediately right. that, but experience on top. And uh, of course, games don't have a lot of the burdens that that uh, physical buildings do.
8: Mm-hmm.
5: And uh, it's just incredibly inspiring to be constantly reminded that that's what matters most. And then you make that happen in the most uh, logical, practical, economical way that you can. But that I think is, is what matters the most, the, the experience that you have. And that's the single most important focus
1: Yeah, I was loving hearing Greg talk about that kind of constructing that experience and and using all the different skills to do that. I have a really big fat question for Alexandra that I'm going to throw out. Um, But again, feel free to respond to things you can see in the chat as well. So Alexandra, just to read this question out to you. What's your opinion on the effect of virtual identity and public space? Oh, okay, Wow. Um, That's that's quite a rich question on its own. It goes on, as younger generations use social media and targeted advertising to visit spaces, do you feel that this distorts the mental image of urban space through these filter bubbles of information? Could this be a driver for public space or does this make virtual spaces even more important to diversity? Okay, so there's generally this sort of interplay between virtual identities and public space that I think I'd love to hear your take on it, Alexandra, but I'd also love to hear Will and anybody else who wants to throw into that one.
7: Sure. I mean, this seems like I, I was just on this podcast called 99% invisible talking about Instagram's effect on architecture. And I think that this question is closely aligned with that. I mean, and, and I think, I mean, social media is, yeah, is a, is a slice is a slice of ourselves. And it's a slice of the architectural spaces that we want to share. And there are specific, um, kind of modes of architectural space that look better on social media, particularly Instagram. And and I think when people are talking about the Instagramification of architecture, a lot of times they're talking about like the selfie lighting or the very shareable wall or the very shareable floor. Um, but like in, on the podcast I was on, I talked about how like, yes, that's true, but a lot of that is happening in hospitality spaces and entertainment spaces. And I don't think it's deeply affecting the way that architecture and cities are put together. Um, Partially because, you know, what looks good on social media is an incredibly shallow space. I mean, it's, it's almost like Shumi's Zoom background, you know, like, is a mural in a city. Like, and a mural is great and it's great for selfies, but If we're really kind of getting into the nitty-gritty of how to build cities, it's everything around the mural. You know, it's like how do you get to the mural? What's happening in the street around the mural? Um, You know, who made the mural? Who paid for the mural? Like, there's all this other stuff going on. And just because social media only shows that little bit of it doesn't mean that the rest of it goes away. Um, And and I guess my hope always is that when people actually journey to that place they see the rest of it and they start to get interested in the rest of it. I mean, I realize that's like partially a slightly utopian attitude, but. But um, let me push
1: a little more. Do you think something like The Sims or the fact that people are now virtually making, constructing buildings and spaces and they get little validation because now that people are all happy and it's been a long time since I played those games, but do you think that actually helps people
7: understand the demands of public space? Do you think it could? um, I think. I think it helps them understand the demands of space, you know, kind of like how to arrange things in a room, in a sense. But I don't think it really helps them understand like the socio-political dimension of space. I mean, I think that people are, I mean, I think that games like Animal Crossing, that's been incredibly popular during the quarantine, and also like, and it's kind of like Baby Sims, it seems like. like. I think that that is speaking to you know people's desire, like deep-seated desire to get together, and so it it's like scratching a little bit of that itch, but there's no way for it to like scratch the real itch. It's just mm-hmm. like there's no, I mean, there's probably a way, but most virtual spaces just don't have the complexity of real spaces for all the reasons that we've talked about before. Um, so it's, I think these worlds can express a little bit of the, you know, kind of human condition of interaction, but not the, like the full range of expression.
3: I think that's where, where fidelity could be really interesting. Sometimes when I feel like the, like Animal Crossing example, a lot of people talk directly to each other or they'll emote to each other, but then you look at a game like Journey where you're, you know you're participating in a game that has a narrative it's kind of like set up like an orchestra and you you're hitting each piece by piece and it's a 2 hour very constructed experience um you play with people that you cannot verbally communicate with but you can mm-hmm. just ping you can literally just make like small pings or big pings to them and that's it um but you travel along with them along this journey and it it's not a direct connection like like what you're talking about where you're you can't really arrange to do that with a friend that you know, but it's kind of like this more imagined connection with a stranger that um, at the end of the game, it like shows you who you, who you connected with. And it doesn't tell you that the person that you were playing with was even a real person until the end of the game. And that's kind of like a realization that occurs there. But, um, There's something
1: quite beautiful about the way you describe that.
3: It is an amazing game. It's, it's definitely worth checking out, but, um, yeah, there's, there's like, a lack of fidelity there that i think i think this is what the human imagination is basically humans are really good at um basically suspending disbelief i think like when you read a book you don't there's not a lot of like visual stimuli but you can imagine a lot and i think that's where the question of fidelity earlier um comes in where it's like okay it actually we can get by with not a load of fidelity super hot as well was an example that you're talking about and in terms of like fully immersing you in a space but um Mm -hmm. but still get a lot from the experience and sometimes you get this thing in uh games animation called the uncanny valley where um when a character model looks like too real then the animation work can't quite keep up and you get these kind of mannequin looking things and i think you get that in design as well i think you get that in interactive space where when you make something more and more interactable then the bits that aren't interactable suddenly become incredibly highlighted um yeah and i think that's like i don't think that's just applicable to visual elements i think it's applicable to sound and design and everything basically um and i think uh that includes social elements i would say um like i think if you if you engage with it on like a level that is like okay this is not gonna uh completely replace me going to the pub with my friends, but it's going to be like supplemental to that. It's going to do something slightly different. And like, we can have a lot of fun just like kind of, I don't know, playing this co-op game together or whatever. Um, then it, it, yeah, I don't know. That's kind of how I feel about,
1: uh, well, but let me take, yeah, let me take Uncanny Valley and and maybe slightly move it to, to Will. Um, (laughs) not because uncanny valley seems like a place that you might like to visit although i don't know maybe um do you adopt different identities when you're playing games do you play like massive online you know role-playing games where you're connected to lots of different people do you have personas
2: no i never never enjoyed um, multiplayer
8: uh-huh.
2: um, gaming and 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 um, play uh, apart from you know with people in the room with me which is different, you know. Um, uh, although I, I keep um, you know uh, a close watch on on what happens because um, we we were talking earlier about um, uh, whether what lessons could be learned from uh, about about space um, uh, from fr- from games and the these massive multiplayer online games have uh, have actually um, proven to be quite useful in terms of um, modeling various aspects of of, of um, um, society often by accidents when when stuff goes wrong. There was a, a famous instance in in World Warcraft some years ago, where mm-hmm. a um, uh, essentially a plague broke out because of a bug. There was a uh, a contagion that spread from player to player and and um, and, and, and weakened and, and killed them, which was um, a game mechanic that had, that had gone out of control. And the way that um, the, the, the way that people adapted to uh, try and respond to the fact that this thing that was killing players by the score. Um, was was going around and there was no way of beating it um, uh, and and the way that the, the the plague spread through the world managed to um, teach epidemiologists um, some, some useful lessons um, because uh, players had different strategies for for, um, uh, for for dealing with it and you know some isolated themselves from 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 the rest of the game environment others uh, you know went and um, uh, tried to help people uh, some uh, mm-hmm. you know uh, deliberately tried to spread the plague and it, and mm-hmm. it had you know uh, this was this was several years ago but um you know had, had some sounds like lessons, battle
1: so. royale in some sort of weird way where <laughs> i guess it's a social experiment in some ways and and i guess social worlds and, and gaming worlds can be that
8: yeah um
1: it's just so great listening to all of you. I keep forgetting to list, uh, look at new questions. There's one here from Tom Dykoff. I'm not sure if Tom's here, but it's written down, so I'm going to read it out. And if Tom wants to jump in on video, great. But um, the question is, can, can gaming worlds offer glimpses of... Okay. Can gaming worlds offer glimpses of utopias that might anticipate change in the real world? Okay, so not just utopias, because I think gaming worlds can offer fantasy worlds where things don't have to die and stuff like that but he asks if gaming worlds can offer glimpses of potentially politically radical utopias that might anticipate change in the real world or are we being idealistic is it unfair to expect computer games to change the world
2: well i mean there are a lot of games that, 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 that have that as their ex- explicit dynamic if that's the way that you want to play them i mean you know games like um uh City and, and, and Civilization you know which are which are venerable you know games that have been through many iterations um, uh, you know have as, as part of their draw for some some players the ability to shape um, uh, you know a city or a, um, uh, a whole um, society to, to your own um, mm. uh, to your own ends and, and and develop it in the way you want and some people um, you know do that in in, in terms of um, Building, you know, what they would regard as a as a perfect or 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 just um, world, you know, or a a, a pretty and you know well fed and generally speaking um, uh, contented and beautiful city, and other people play it by building, you know, sprawling industrial megal megalopolises and um, mm-hmm. you know uh, or bloodthirsty empires, and there are um, uh, games, um, you know, so so these these simulation games have the opportunity to um steer society in 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 ways and and make choices there are um other games that that ask much more challenging questions ethical questions um there's a game called um prison architect um that uh i mean does exactly what it says on the tin it it involves building and and operating a a prison and um it's uh could be on the um on the surface, an ethically kind of dubious game, but um, I, I, I think it's actually quite a um, one that architects and, and, and other um, people in design responsibilities um, should should play. Because um, if you try and if you if you play it in a, um, in a in a way that tries to improve the lot of your prisoners. Um, it, that's the most hard thing to do that's you know that that's not sandboxing that's not um en- enjoying itself it's very easy to build a, a violent crowded um unpleasant profitable prison but um it's incredibly hard to build one that um, that, that that has you know relatively contented prisoners and is and, there um, an
1: incentive to do either one in the game or can you just do what you want
2: no, it's completely disincentivized. The, the whole The whole economic model of the game, quite wow. subtly, is based on constant growth, bringing in more and more prisoners all the time. Oh my God, get, this is so very,
8: dark.
2: Yeah, you get very, you get very, <laughs> very yeah, and it, it, it's very dark. But I mean, in in, in that darkness, it teaches quite valuable um, ethical questions about the limitations of 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 of, of, of design, about oh, how sure. um, you know, uh, it, you know, whether you know once you get involved, once you start to de- engaging with these, these questions, you, you find that your, your, your abilities as the designer are, are deeply limited. And um, it, so I, I would recommend it to, um, you know, architects and, and, and educators um, as a kind of uh, a sort of moral lesson almost, because, yeah. um, you know, uh, things do have a tendency to tend back towards Shawshank, no matter how much you might try to be trying to create this sort of pleasant Scandinavian parkland environment.
1: <laughs> Amen, I think I worked in Pentonville prison my second year of architecture school and um, I guess now if you don't want to do that then you can play prison architect and, and be faced with some similar kind of funny feelings in your stomach about what to do. Um, I feel like you probably have some, maybe some questions for each other, there there are a few also vocal piece, people in the audience, I'm not sure this whether...
3: about like. Cities and walking and encouraging walking. Right, I
1: think there was a the point from Aubrey as well about wanting to nudge uh, positive behavior, like uh, yeah. try to encourage people into walking. I think. Yeah. Say about that.
2: Could I could I ask a question off, off Greg about that? I mean, it's it's related to that. It's directly directly related to that. Um, but it, it was um, because one of the things that I've always enjoyed about open environment games like like um, uh, GTA and and and. Um, journey and, and, and um, uh, fallout three and so on is, is, is the, the the way that the landscape uh, conceals and reveals and entices you through by, by showing and withholding um, details of your environment you catch a glimpse of a, a, of a distant landmark and then it and then it's withdrawn and, and so on and so forth and yeah. and I was wondering about designing a, an environment like that which is something I've never done and and, and again what that can teach about architecture and, and wayfinding and, and, and the environment
3: yeah, I think
11: well,
2: it, it was actually yeah, you're right. Directly related
3: to what I was I was gonna say on that as well, which I think basically to bring it around to more the question of building that in a game. I think um, you know with Sable, for example, that's something that we really like was the first thing that that made us want to make the game. I just remember b- building a massive cube about like two in-game kilometers away, and then making a hover bike and and just the drive to it. And as it got bigger and bigger, and these we had these dunes, and each dune kind of like revealed it, but like slightly closer or at a slightly different angle, it became just uh, quite like captivating. And I think that's true for. Um, I think that's also true for real cities and real environments, and walking around real environments. And I think um, I'm probably gonna. Uh, I might upset a few Americans when I say this, but I think that's the difference between American cities and like European or older cities, Asian cities or African cities even. Mm -hmm. I imagine that like, uh, well, when you navigate them on foot, instead of these very long straight boulevards that are kind of designed for cars to drive down, you have these more winding, intricate spaces that aren't practical to build and and like uh, uh, only that way because they, one, were built be explored on foot but two they were also kind of built over many many you know thousands of years and so uh, that's where those kind of like viewpoints reveals uh, like hideaways and kind of those elements start to really become uh, become intrinsic to the way that you explore a space and I think that's what when you talk about making a game like GTA 5, where it's, it's set in an American city, it's set in LA, um, and driving is a core component of that game, but you spend a lot of time driving. Um, and the way that they try and make that more dynamic is is through human behaviour, but um, through like through spatial exploration on foot in that game. If you just want to run down a road, it's going to just be you're running in a straight line, um, and that's because that that city is that it's based on is built for with cars in mind and in the UK. Mm-hmm. We only have like what Milton Keynes that is built on a grid in that way everything else is a is a mess um but i think it's, a, it's kind of a an amazing mess you know when i explored like the medina in uh Marrakesh on foot it it's phenomenal like it every corner you turn is a reveal and i think that's true oh my
1: god wow i like that you experience I, real life in in like game terms now where you just yeah. turn a corner and you're like wow it's an amazing reveal well,
3: <laughs> Yeah, a hundred percent. It's just, but I think this is true when you're designing a game, you know, you look at a game like Breath of the Wild and the thing that they talk about designing around is, is triangles because triangles are really good at like revealing and hiding things basically. Um, but turning corners in a, in a, you know, narrow alley is, is a really good way of doing that. And I think that's as true for cities and built environments that you explore on foot or you know, real life as it is in video games. but uh, well,
5: yeah. I, I think this notion of the sense of discovery, you know, that, that uh, can be created through the experience of walking through and how that could or should uh, perhaps inform cities is really interesting. And uh, interestingly enough, the only architectural typology, I would dare say, that really makes use of that is the one one of the most dreaded ones by architects, which is shopping malls, where uh, where there is really this consideration uh, in in the better cases um, of um, of o- almost the, the theme park experience or the game experience of, of a sense of discovery. And one thing that 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 we always uh, discuss um, in in the sense that that in video games uh, when you are designing virtual worlds, you are carving. Uh, out of a uh, empty void, right? As opposed to when you're designing a physical building, you, you have a plot
1: into real life. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Well, uh, the uh, Unreal Engine used to be like that. When when I started working with in 2008, there was like quite an amazing shift. It was basically spatially was an enormous solid, and to create space, even if you wanted an outdoor space, you had to to carve out. If you wanted the sky, you want you carved out a dome. Mm-hmm sphere and then you project the sky onto it a very very different kind of way of understanding speciality uh, but of course i think there's there's no no translation that i know of that is that is kind of uh of a, of a healthy nature uh yet, even though like you know shopping malls or or even if you go further kind of mega resorts and these kind of things they by nature are Purely experiential, and they ignore. I have everything.
1: to bring Alexandra
7: in on this because this is what she's thinking. I think a lot about right now. Yeah, um, my next book is actually going to be about shopping malls. Oh, um, yes. Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> well, yes. hopefully, like it's everything's a little bit up in the air right now because I was supposed to spend the last two months traveling around the U.S. going to shopping malls, and obviously that did not happen. Um, but yeah, I mean it. It's actually fascinating to me, because now that I've been looking at the history of shopping malls, because they started out being so simple. Um, you know, like every like early shopping mall is basically two department stores with an enclosed street running down the center, you know, just like a Galleria in an old European city. And it's like over time they became more and more Baroque and over time they became this much more confusing environment. But their original principles are just like you know main street under glass um and so it's always funny to me when people say oh i you know like i can't shop at a shopping mall because it's too confusing <laughs> and it's and it's like yeah yeah see sometimes i think it's people that didn't grow up going to shopping malls because i did so i don't find them confusing but then sometimes i just think you could actually periodize shopping malls by their level of confusingness um because in the mid 80s they become more entertainment environments and then i think um they start to have that like zentropic like keep you inside like there are there are no exits here um thing that i was gonna say that sounds like a fun project but then you're doing it will had his hand (laughs)
1: raised i I wondered if he had a question or if you were just saying you don't like shopping in shopping malls
2: i uh, was um no, just uh, the, the this question of um of of, of revealing you know of, of not making your destination clear of, of, of you know um uh, curving or, or kinking a space um so that you d- you can't see the way the way out um uh, uh immediately um uh, I, I, I Something I wanted to bring was that in some ways games designers were originally forced into this by by the limitations of the technology they they They, they were forced into architecture because they couldn 't do a um, to, 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 to include a, a straight street and, or an where you could see from you know a, a great distance would mean rendering a great many ob- objects all at once and instead they had to uh, Ben create ways of, 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 of bending space. And, um, and and so you more like a movie set where you, you only see a small amount each time because that was yeah. what the capabilities of the of the machinery could could manage. And so in some ways they were they were obliged to um, uh, um, uh, yeah they, they were forced into into architecture and urbanism and um, there's a wonderful uh, uh, book um by nicholas Pesno, best best known for the buildings of England called Visual Planning and the Picturesque where he takes you um kind of step by step through a series of photographs um through a series of quite pretty streets in 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 oxford and and explains what makes them kind of attractive and this is a way of um uh, explaining how to properly design housing estates in the in the in the in the 50s and 60s it's um and one. it's it, it, it,
1: it, 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 it's it's quite fun i I'd, I'd really like to read a review you write of it or something i think that would be really cool
2: yeah it's all well, it's it's like um, i mean but it's like walking through a video game because it's it's mm-hmm. it's a series of, of still images you know of what's revealed at each point and um, you know that that is the same um uh, the, 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 it's, it, it, you know, he's writing in the fifties, but that's, that's, it's very similar. Um, anyway, sorry, about...
1: no, no, that's, that's totally fine. I, I did have a question that's dissolved in all the interesting discussion that's happening. Ithia, did you have anything you wanted to kind of bring up like, as we kind of move towards a time when I should be closing the chat in a few minutes?
6: Yeah, I don't know. I think like a lot, a lot of um, kind of uh, my, my work with kind of using um augmented reality and and things like that it's kind of talking about kind of maybe um some consequences of it i know that we've been talking about like maybe like kind of like the social elements of um social spaces and how um kind of children are dealing with um kind of socializing with using um um like kind of gaming and things like that but i don't know if there's any kind of like comments anyone wants to make kind of on like maybe power, um, like kind of the immense amount of like electricity or power that's used in making games or like, Mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe like a a slightly different take on it. I don't know if that takes one. That's
1: that's right. I think we think of these things as totally immaterial and liberated from all the constraints of, um, you know, physical consumption, but of course Mm -hmm. they're not from the, from the things that are used to make hardware to the massive energy consumption. Um, of, of rendering all of these things that's a really good question I don't know if any of our panelists uh, want to respond to that I also just wanted to pick up on a quote from Southlander, who is talking about these sort of slightly illogical spaces both in games and malls and thinking of casinos as well where you're sort of you want the visitor to be a bit disorientated and a bit lost because you want the visitor to spend more time in it and possibly spend more money so yeah i don't know if any of the panelists want to respond to environmental ecological financial uh, perhaps
3: that stuff is is really relevant i think a lot of that stuff will tie into the production of game consoles themselves i think that's like a big problem batteries for the switch or for you know for phones as well phones are phones are used as game consoles and i think a lot of that stuff uh, you know will come into kind of built in obsolescence of those uh objects that we use for gaming and the kind of uh the need for companies to have you buy like the newest one right and Mm -hmm. part of that is is getting to a point where and i think games are starting to get there where games are actually really expensive to make at the fidelity that these consoles allow um and so we're going to perhaps hopefully just get to diminishing returns on that point and just stick with the consoles we have. And I think we're starting to see that a little bit more now with, um, with, uh, console life cycles starting to take a bit longer, but I think, uh, I think gradually they'll get long enough that you'll, you'll set, you'll keep your console, you'll be downloading games digitally. And so that will help a bit in that regard. Now as to how much power consumption they use themselves, mm-hmm. um, that is a that is a really important point um i guess that's the benefit to having new consoles, is that they become more
4: optimized
3: um but uh but then I, I don't know what the trade-off is there but yeah i don't know what the trade-off is there. Mm-hmm. constructing a new one that is much more power optimized and having this old one which is consuming far more power but um but i do think we'll reach that diminishing returns on the production side where you know a game like the last of us for example it's just not not feasible for literally any other game developer in the world um, to get that fidelity and i think that will become more and more true and but we can also be a bit more i don't it's hard for me to explain this in in without getting into too much granularity but um but basically if you look at a game like cars which is highly stylized it which allows a smaller team to make it um It means that that, a game like that could work on, theoretically, on older hardware for longer. And so if more games were built in this more stylized manner, Mm -hmm. um, as long as you can achieve your objectives on the game design side, then you could, in theory, I could, in theory, go away and make another game on, like, the current generation of consoles, and it it wouldn't affect my intentions in game design. Um, And so... (laughs) those things will slow down, hopefully, the production of hardware um, over time and just mean that there are longer generation cycles.
1: Right, I think I get what you're talking about. And that has profound implications in terms of who's able to access and and what's accelerating um, and how much people can share in terms of um, of. um, of things.
4: As a kind of uh, curiosity and as a um, comment in regards to what Iwe was bringing up, which I'm sure is something that you've also thought about, but it's super interesting in your research in, in, in AR, um, we know for a fact that, that these companies that, I mean, we are talking about gaming here mainly, but, but if we think about the future of, of of augmented reality, um, we're probably going to see a, a bigger concentration of energy, uh, resources into even more compact and more efficient data centers, which will require more and more and more power. But, uh if the plan that these companies uh, have of basically eliminating all screens in the next 20 years including the screens we're looking at now every single smartphone every single you know every office every every w- will not have any screens because the screens will be carried on each person and there's even speculations very high up in some of these tech companies that we could potentially in the next 50 years eliminate all artificial lighting literally every single light bulb every single LED light we won 't have to make them again because the you know technically this is getting really complex but uh, but if the world is just scanned and each individual is scanned then, then a city could be completely physically dark but you you see the yeah, you know, there there will be so wow, many. you're fl-
1: talking about
5: stuff that's slightly terrifying, but also I mean, magical. there will be so
4: many fluctuations that might throw all
5: of this out the window and and change everything. But people is freaking out. But just think about <laughs> the moment when someone said, "We are going to have this thing that is like a bulb that is going to make everything bright, <laughs> and there will be no more fires, <laughs> like just no to, more gas lamps, no more, gas more lamps.
4: no more whale hunting." So
5: and, it and... it's not that that different in terms of a step it sounds scary but uh... now, the
4: implications are vast but there's literally conversations that are happening like should we invest a trillion dollar in the next 10 years and making that a reality or not so
1: i don't know any people who are more ready to embrace you know the future than frederick and laura so i think we have all got stuff to learn from let's check our kind of panic reactions it might be okay <laughs> it might be okay um all right i think we just have a couple minutes more on this so i don't know if there's anything desperate that people want to bring up or kind of leave the audience with in terms of i guess the initial question of of this evening was kind of about world building and what alternative possibilities there are and i feel like you've all been so great in um fleshing out your different interests in that is there anything anyone wants to bring up or or kind of close on
11: I, I'm i going to come in just to annoy Bobby. Go on. <laughs> um, I couldn't help thinking on, on the last bit with what um, Lara and Frederick were saying. Um, I couldn't help thinking what Frederick and Lara were, were saying in the last point. It's been fantastic debate, absolutely brilliant speakers and great cheering, thank you. And I just posted it on the chat box is there any lessons from historical figures whether it's what will was talking about with Pevner and the way he takes us through oxford or or whether it's to do with the, the the chap Varese i i mentioned who was seen as the godfather of electronic music who had a dream that he um um when phone technology came out he he was transported from new york to paris and completely disintegrated into a different world and i just wonder if there's any kind of identity or transform transformational aspect of um, what we've been talking about tonight which um, um, has uh, maybe some precedent with some his- or maybe has some historical precedent where there's some writing or knowledge that um, mm-hmm. we, we can kind of draw upon to sort of
8: mm-hmm. help
11: anchor ourselves and help expand what to me, has been a really illuminating chat on a lot of things that I really don't know much about.
1: I guess I can think of one immediately. Um, The novel, I believe, Victorian novel Flatland by Edwin A. Abbott Yes, yeah. That was uh, about one of these, I suppose, shifts, and it was simplified so that it could work as a little novella um, about a two-dimensional world and the threat that's posed by the possibility of three dimensions and how many...
8: Yeah, excellent, um, yeah
1: social kind of problems there are with accepting change. I mean, that's, that's one that I I find continually useful, just buying a couple more minutes for the panelists. If any of you guys have any, any responses.
4: No, I, I think you're just jumping in with a quick, with a quick thing. I think that as a very general thing with exploring any of these ideas of things that are seemingly new. Uh, so of course, that in the grand scheme of things. They're never really quite new. I think it's really is a good point and something really important. In, in the project that we did together with Chumi, um, that Chumi mentioned briefly, we did a, a study of the last 500 years of, of media, mass media and its influence on architectural style specifically and definitely in our research what we realized is that it's a continuing process, even gaming, digital gaming and VR and all of these things, they are not really, really that new. And and the kind of nuances of of understanding. So how past media has affected uh, the world and culture, you know, we're, we, we can learn so much from looking back, even, even way past electricity, even. I uh,
8: mean,
1: if- one thing we extracted from working, well, one thing you guys extracted from working on that exhibition was about agency and how much that has opened up, right, in terms of, Um, I think one thing that we discovered was how few people were able to get involved in let's say the world building process if we're talking about building architecture and dictating style and how advancing technologies have allowed more and more people to participate in that process. And I think that's reflected in some of the discussions that you guys have been expanding today. That make sense?
8: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. (laughs) All right, I think it's about time to draw this bit of it to the close. I don't know if the hosts are gonna kind of open up chat for people to hang out a bit afterwards, but I just wanted to thank um, all the panelists, Alexandra, Greg, Will, Frederick, Laura, Ivier. Thank you so much um, for just a little bit of an insight into how you've been thinking about alternative worlds. And thank you so much to the audience for um, hanging out so long. And of course, to um, Fourth Space and the Negroni Talks team.
12: Thank you, and um, yeah, we will open it all up to um,
1: what we tend to call the after party. It sort of goes on and on as long as people want to hang around so
12: people can drop out um, to carry on.
1: Thank you so much. Thank
12: you very much everybody.
1: <laughs>
12: yeah, everyone should be able to unmute themselves, by the way, now if you did want to give a round of applause. And yeah, so you can,
1: you can unmute yourselves and talk to each other from the safety of your laptops. <laughs>
6: Thanks
5: so much again. I was just saving the chat because uh, <laughs> it was just the most amazing. Oh, it's amazing. been on fire. It yeah, was
6: amazing on the side.
5: We've,
9: I
6: never,
9: we've never had a chat like that before, ever. Yeah,
6: it's been the best.
5: <laughs> Everyone, thank you. That, I mean, <laughs> I was like, oh my God. <laughs> so interesting. I think, it's one I of think the first, first
11: Negroni talks I've had where I felt as if I've learned something.
9: <laughs> oh, the first one. Well, that's Wait, the other. Steve, one. Steve, this is number twenty-five. <laughs> it's just this is number it twenty. this time.
8: <laughs> oh man!
1: I'm kind
9: of, I'm kind of curious for some of the kind of older people in the audience. How many people have actually played video games or are familiar with them?
1: What did, define of? older people in the <laughs> audience?
11: man. I, 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 I'm in my Sorry. last century. Yeah. <laughs> Um, um, I've been transported from another world and I have a a 15 year old um, telling me all about open world games all the time. So I know a little bit and I'm old. (laughs)
3: But it it was ultimately a child that brought the technology into the household in a way. Yeah, well I I was ZX81
11: when I was young so yeah.
9: Interesting.
2: I, I have to go, I'm afraid. I'm sorry. But um, I have to go and give children their bedtimes and so on. But um, thank you for having me. Um, it's been a real pleasure. Very interesting. Thank you very much. Thank you, oh, oh, thank you so much.
6: It's so good to see you.
2: Yeah.
6: Um, I, I I really feel like I want to learn more about gaming now as well, because I feel like it would really help my practice. So it was <laughs> really amazing to just like hear from all of you. It was, it was super fascinating. And I think um, yeah, even, even thinking about like just the triangles and like hiding spaces around and, and stuff like that, I was like, Yeah, oh.
1: let's all go for virtual dinner or maybe meet in Animal <laughs> Crossing or something and, and kind of hang out and talk about games.
11: But, mm. E.B. I also liked your idea of low render. Mm. You know, just not really getting it too hyper real, just keeping it rough and ready. You know, there's an yep. aestheticness to that, which I think sounds quite adhering
6: yeah i think it's it's kind of almost kind of been um i like obviously like kind of using unity and all these kind of um softwares usually people spend like months and months kind of building up scenes and stuff like that and I think that um kind of with the the my practice it was quite kind of like messy process i think in terms of what what a gaming um kind of scene should look like i think and so um I feel a bit. Of a um, like a, like kind of working with the tools in in a bit of a wrong way, but then actually um, for for my artwork and for what I was trying to explore, um, it was quite necessary to do it. in that, that kind but of, it kind,
11: of kind of also suggests
3: approximation and mistakes can be allowed to enter in a little bit. Yeah, I think that's valuable as well. Like a lot of people make games in the right way, and I think that like having diverse voices, not just like in terms of uh, your individual identity, but also your background, like your work background is really important. And I think that's where like the discussion about architecture is also valuable because there are a couple of, you know, there are architects who have worked in Gates before, but I think uh, with less of a, like a specific focus on it. um, And I think that's becoming more and more relevant, but with your background, uh, I think that's really interesting to, to, like work in the wrong way um, because sometimes you discover new things about the tools um, you know and i think that's that's incredibly valuable as someone who who maybe has to work more in the right way
5: um, yeah the The metaverse needs to be diverse and weird you know (laughs) otherwise it is if you you have you tried um, this platform for web mozilla hubs what was that mozilla hubs uh, which is a very a very simple platform for making worlds i i and there someone built i think it's in hubs um a game for which is a puzzle with um 3d with um 3 scans of uh, spaces wow. where you have to put them back together it's very beautiful and uh, i think you might find it um fun to experiment i've been loving it for the past 3 months i've been using it and it's just so simple and you can make a mess so quickly and just like put stuff up okay. and yeah and really exp- yeah. walk in
4: but we also use it and I, we just encourage everyone to use it because it's it's run by a, a non-profit foundation yeah which which has a manifesto for a healthy internet as as its backbone
1: i'm really glad you got to bring that up I uh, i don't know that but... It was necessarily organic in the conversation we had earlier, but I'm really glad you brought up the of the Foundation. Could you could you expand a bit on that and yeah, why I mean, we chose yeah. that as the as the platform to work with children and stuff like that?
4: Yeah, I mean it's it's the reason one of the main reasons why we decided to use it for our collaboration in this project with Reba with the a, a group of, of young students. Um,
5: our camera just
12: went crazy
1: oh <laughs> for some reason doesn't oh, yeah. matter you okay. can see a little bit soft
12: focus <laughs> but it was really good as well because i i spoke to you guys about mozilla hubs before for that architect climate action network and we actually like built an exhibition from your advice for yeah 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 it's it's super easy yeah it's so the amount of fun you can have we built this like uh, climate confessional booth thing that was like this huge cathedral that was flooded yeah, I saw that. That's um, yeah, awesome. It's it just such a good platform to just really be accessible and yeah, fun. And not to, and
4: not to downgrade your, your ability to get that to happen. We literally, like, we, we were in a workshop with with Chumi with these, uh, like, 17-year-old, 16-year-old students uh, for, like, an hour and a half. And they all created the most mind-blowing spaces. But one of the one of the main reasons why we chose to work with it and why we would encourage anyone else to work with it, because even if some of these tools are free, like Unity and many of the other ones, by using it, you're like voting for the way you want the this digital world to be, right? If you buy a video game, you're saying, "I want, please make more of these video games." Or like if you're using a platform, even if it's free, you're saying, "Like, yeah, I want more of this stuff." And just by using that, because a nonprofit organization has a manifesto for. For a diverse and healthy internet at its core they wouldn't do anything as far as i understand if it if it doesn't follow the manifesto and we're just like now we're we did it with with these things. oh there we go <laughs> <laughs> and uh but we're now using it even with clients and um, oh, sorry i
1: just wanted
4: some background music i didn't want to stop you carry on <laughs> <laughs> my god this is like Kind of sounds, I cannot hear them without playing back my entire childhood.
8: <laughs>
4: now, I'd encourage you to try it out, it's really, really amazing, and also you can access it with like a smartphone. This sounds like a, like, a, like
1: no, a, I'll stop it, I'll stop download it. Download the
4: app now, and if you click twice, you'll get an extra coin.
1: <laughs> you guys, I, this is what I listen to when I'm trying to work like kind of manically
12: this is what I listen to because oh
1: mm. just the coins just the,
12: the coins collecting. <laughs> yeah just that coin <laughs> I'll like three hours of coins collecting right. but, <laughs> but that's what I mean about like subconsciously like gamifying every experience like if you just like yeah sentence down got a coin kind of yeah. thing and it all just comes back to this kind of like production of capital coming in again to like influence you going down but oh man yeah.
1: I'm gonna
12: or maybe that's just the only sounds you can make in 8-bit that sounds good enough you know, oh, just those, composers,
1: those composers were amazing. I would collect their work. Those those um Japanese musicians who had composed music for those games. Uh because well, sh-
9: Shumi, Shumi, did you um there was an amazing six music programme, I'll try and dig it out, where um they talked about um the death music in video games. Because the way that you compose the music when a character dies,
8: mm-hmm.
9: the idea is that it's meant to sort of instill a sense of sort of sadness and that you've lost a level but not make you so melancholy that you you do not play that you don't play the next one right it was like this like intense amount of intense amount of effort and thought and six music did like they went through like a whole load of video game death sounds and it was absolutely amazing
1: i don't know if that's manipulative or genius to try and sort of use a game environment to good, good experience, kind yeah. of normalize the death experience. And it's yes, okay.
11: Were
12: a lot of like, the composers coming out of Japan then? Yeah.
1: I, I'm speaking about those games. Yeah, definitely. Yeah.
12: Well, yeah. like weirdly enough, like a lot of them were influenced by Yellow Magic Orchestra back yes. in the day from like the 70s and 80s. And oh, they goodness. in turn were influenced by uh, Debussy. Like Sakamoto was hugely influenced by Debussy. So it's weird that it does come back to this like, Romantic French background, yeah. Have you read
11: Bobby? Have you read the David Toot book? Uh,
12: yeah, all the time.
11: Yeah, I mean, he he goes right back, you know, to the busy (laughs) stuff, and that's why I was trying to figure out if there was stuff on gaming in that book. I can't remember, you know, how else to read it. Yeah, but um, yeah, Japanese were 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 uh very interesting in that regard because their society through the 60s, 70s, and 80s, when they were experimenting with that sound was very, very conservative.
12: Yeah, and it like took like digital like yeah. sounds to start being expansive. And yeah. you saw a similar way the creativity was expanded upon a few video games through there. Shimi, um, why why is this here? What am I looking at? <laughs> Sorry, I don't know. <laughs>
1: you
12: just, this is just,
1: I love it. You can see what's going on here, right? This is, I think, a couple of times ago when I went to Calcutta where I'm from um, and I was going to oh it was the place where the gentleman who drives our car who used to drive our car it was a place where he used to get his lunch so this is like quite into an urban slum area and um, I just saw this painting on the wall and I went with him that day and was just kind of um, I don't know what to say. I was just kind of thrilled and, and weirded out by seeing that I guess the kids around there were walking around playing Pokemon Go, and, and this was so much a part of their daily life that it then becomes manifest on a building. But, which but it's also over. a Ganesh
11: thing going on as well.
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, God, being, being from Kolkata, I don't even see those kind of hybrids anymore. Yeah, everything counts in the pantheon of Hindu gods. Pokemon Go, yeah, bring it. It's fine.
8: This
11: is like Gamer God, isn't
12: it? Yeah. But it's quite funny, though, that like um, Pokemon yeah, no, Go just... is essentially like the last, like I think like Pokemon Go is like the last like cyber utopianism that's probably going to happen this century. Because everyone, when like, that came out, everyone was like, that's so great, so positive. Everyone loved it. was loved totally
1: it. flawed, right? It was really dangerous.
12: Yeah, it was like really manipulative. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's really like... You know was it not one of those things
11: where it was like one of, one of those first examples, and maybe there's more, I don't know... Of where um, the 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 gaming and the virtual world got people outside.
6: Yeah. It also kind of got people quite lost in like kind of like woods and all sorts kind of like finding. <laughs> I, I think that I've heard some horrendous stories about people finding bodies in the woods or something because they were chasing a Pokemon or something. It it got quite. It felt like it got quite dark. <laughs> the whole Pokemon Go. It also it also got
9: quite yeah, boring <laughs> quite quickly, didn't it? It also it was the sense that they didn't after the initial gimmick of the augmented reality, they didn't really know where to take it.
6: Mm-hmm.
12: So it Wasn't that a problem hype hype with the whole Go on, Fred.
4: No, it got such a huge hype because it was just the first. But it mm. still has a huge amount of playing playing and Neantic, the company that that owns it, they still make shitloads of money. And they are like top five of the players that are literally building what the augmented city will be like. They are so big that they organized the biggest world conference on cities and augmentation and stuff. And they, they fund pr- projects and they're working on the weirdest shit, like uh, all basically from money and technology from Pokemon Go. So I think oh, this wow. discussion will circle around in the, like 10, 20 years. There'll be all sorts of archaeology about like going back to that, Hyped moment that we all seem to like just, you know. Uh, this, like, I mean, park.
11: I mean, the, the the difficulty with Pokemon Go and um, getting people out to the streets, and to, in in essence, maybe explore the city, is when you combine it with the situationist derive, which yep. is an anti-consumerist mm. type of. Um,
1: well. well. Yeah, like so with a, it, with a, following the Situationist Manifesto, you might be inclined to follow, navigate the city through sensations or something. And you might be inclined to do that in virtual space too through a game environment where you're perhaps following oh, doubt, yeah. certainly with wearable tech. Um, I can imagine that being a real possibility. But I guess I was thinking a little bit about Ibia's work with data manipulation and thinking also about what Frederick just said about Neantic being the people with the skin in the game in terms of building the augmented city, are they is there a way that they might is there a way that companies you think are harvesting data from gameplay in order to learn and then implement systems in, in real life? That's got to be happening, right? Yeah. I don't know, Frederick. If you know any conspiracy theories about this, or even not theories, but actual news about whether yeah, there, gaming platforms are harvesting data
4: around around uh,
1: stop sharing
4: in, in augmented reality, so much because the data that you can get from that, you can get in other ways. You know, it's essentially just your position and your camera, and we use our cameras all the time. And and you know, there are other way more suspicious actors, but
5: like. <laughs> yeah like
4: TikTok others. Mean, yeah. but there's right. other i mean there's another discussion around biometric data that's that's harvested from the use of vr which is currently used mainly indoors so the data that companies can get and when you use use an oculus and you sign facebook's um the owner their agreement basically they they get your biometric data which in this case is where you're looking where your hands are which means your body language how you react to things uh, and they can use it basically however they want and of course this is this is kind of worrying but it's still just indoors mainly when that's used in the city then you can build models around how entire crowds behave uh, and then there will be eye tracking and all sorts of things so i think it's it's not yet reached even closely uh, to to a peak of the kind of
11: frederick an, when you're talking about um, analyzing crowds, are you talking about the the physical movements or the psychological?
4: Well, well, what they what they're saying is that you will be able to discern uh, very very detailly about the psychological kind of decision making around how a person moves around in the city based on what they look at, their so like where the gaze point is, the pupil dilation, time that you look at something how your body reacts to that, and then how other people that supposedly then are hooked up to the same thing behave around that, which means that basically, you know, you're, there's nothing in the body itself that actually looks at this, but by looking at every angle of the body.
11: Are we um, actually closer to that than we all maybe think, you know, if you think of the, the statue protectors?
12: No, 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 it's like not even about that, though, because... No, um, no, no, hang on, Bobby. No, no, no.
11: What I am like... about to say is that Kinetty used to talk about the psychology of crowds and how they're manipulated, yeah? Are we actually a lot closer to the way our, our media is manipulating those people? In, in, in some ways, it's almost like a gameplay. No, but I was going to say, yes. like, you know,
12: with a, a video game that's free, video gamers understand that if it's free, then you are the product. And then that kind of understanding needs to be understood more in urban spaces, like when you go to Cold jobs yard you you go there because it's free because you are the product that they want to sell to, and I think there's like quite a nice like l- l- kind of crossover there between understanding like oh what you're allowed to do because companies want you to. Yeah, but I was thinking what more you should for, be allowed yeah, to, a, a public of the, space.
11: Of, the, of the of the biometric aspect
9: of controlling crowds. Did anyone watch the last, the most recent series of Westworld which took it to the nth degree where it was like the idea was that once you input enough data I mean, then... I haven't,
4: I haven't seen it yet, I haven't seen it yet.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, no spoilers, uh, no spoilers. Greg, you were going to say something? But the,
3: <laughs> the like what you're talking about okay. in terms of crowd data and stuff like that, that data is all available already. Like it's not, it's not something you need to gamify or anything. You've got a mobile phone in your pocket. Yeah. They can track that stuff very easily. There's a New York Times, like data tracker article that they did where they just looked at like they could, they could pinpoint like singular people through their phone data um, very easily. And I mean, as game designers, this is kind of there is equivalent ways that we set up uh, or can set up. Don't always have to, but can set up analytics in our games. Um, so, for example, uh, before Sable, we worked on a game called Sw- uh, Swinking, and so we set up analytics where we could see, okay, what levels do people get up to and where, where what percentage are getting to the next level? So, okay, they're getting stuck at level three. There's a problem there. Let's, so then we could evaluate and change the design to accommodate that. And that's also true for urban spaces. Like There's no reason that uh, urban designer or, you know, TFL 100% do this for traffic in London, 100%. They've, they've been doing that for years but and and people traffic too but i mean why couldn't that influence say a protest movement or a,
8: mm-hmm.
3: um, something like that there's nothing to say it couldn't um well, that's, right, I, that's
11: right greg i mean i remember um years ago when i was just finishing school and um, space syntax were doing an awful lot of research on the movements of people across the city and building up huge databases and in essence it's exactly what you were just describing it's about you know, understanding the flow of people through a difficult obstruction, whether that's virtual or whether it's real, yeah. that kind of an analytical research is the same, isn't it? I might, I might jump
1: in here, like just on a couple of levels. I think there's, there's obviously brave new worlds that are kind of being revealed as different technologies intersect, right, and different surveillance technologies, different engagement platforms and so on. I think the more composite images are are created, the more of these platforms intersect. Um, I might have forgotten what I was gonna say. No, I think I was, um, first of all, the space syntax book, really weirdly, the person who gave that to me when I was a second year architecture student was the prison um, director that I worked (laughs) at, when I worked at Pentonville, gave me this book by Bill Hillier. So just a kind of a very clear juxtaposition of kind of spatial intelligence and how it might be used. this person well, they came from
11: the Jeremy Ban- Bentham type of right psychology didn't no, I just thought it was
1: so yeah. cool that he he thought he heard I was an architecture student and just went into his book and brought out a Bill Hillier book and gave it to me he's like hey, you might get some use out of this but it, it was <laughs> um there's something slightly worryingly modernist about any of those sorts of logics and um data-driven logics that would would um proclaim or profess to be able to predict and then therefore manipulate behaviours. And I feel like, I'm thinking a little bit about how Greg was describing complex antique cities versus modern American ones, where there's a sort of grid logic, or at least a logic to an American city. And in antique cities, there were many, many logics, right? Lots and lots of different superimposed, accreted different ways of understanding space, different ways of like according importance to to space. And I think, yeah, possibly the slightly scary thing is when all of these different systems of surveillance and data gathering and data mapping and stuff come together and start to produce very, very complex pictures. I suppose the questions are who has control or access to those things and how easily manipulable are they?
5: sorry guys one second we, we gotta dash off yeah, I just want to a... properly say bye oh, i so uh, so we leave you with the dystopia and enjoy <laughs> that
11: <laughs> I've been loving your background tonight guys thank you so much for coming oh, yeah.
8: thanks
4: for
5: having us it's been so amazing we'll be in touch with, with yeah, everybody was, this yeah. was incredible yeah. I want to
4: hear what be, what you're working on and we Greg, will be checking all of this out for, for sure. Looking forward to see you guys soon. Yeah I think
11: kind of as you were saying Shumi maybe probably a bit more directed to Greg I, I'm interested to see hear what he has to say or anyone else for that matter is that difference between the antique city and the, the ordered American oh. city and how I don't know if it's that conditioning or is it
3: uh, i think it's more it's more subtle than that i think it's like well i think it you know like okay the first examples of this were like the disney world right so like uh they're really good examples of how to move people around a big space Mm -hmm. by attracting them to specific locations but like know you don't want everyone to be attracted to the same place at the same time but you want them to be able to navigate through these different worlds you're looking at boundaries between different worlds and you're also looking at um how to signal and communicate to people uh where each destination that they should be attracted to is whilst also there's an aesthetic layer to that as well on top of all those navigational functional elements um so if you extrapolate that and apply that to a city then you have these like kind of big towers that are like okay i know where that tower is i know where this tower is so i'm going to follow the natural you know it's it's the past path of least resistance in a lot of ways and setting up those parts of yeah, the, But do you not find way. it interesting
11: sorry just to butt in a slight slightly there greg sorry yeah. but do you not find it interesting you bring up disney world and as maybe an example of that um control and orientation i guess um But they use messages from medieval Europe with towers and castles and queens and
3: yeah, Mm vaudeville type stuff, you know. Yeah, I mean, there's a definite like white European mentality to like what specifically that iconography is, but I think you know, you see, you do see this kind of like grandiose iconography elsewhere in the world, like uh, I think in. Vietnam you have these giant like reptilian structures or in India you have giant structures of birds or you know uh, like fallen birds from like mythological tales or I mean in ancient Greece you had all these kind of ancient statues up on hillsides and what have you it's the, the iconography itself is is one thing and I think that is important it's but and that's a cultural element but I think there's a human human tendency to be attracted to these like giant structures because they break the horizon line right like they that's what they do naturally there's like always this horizontal that will always exist even if you're at the end of the world because it's then the ocean you know like whatever but then what cuts that is what is your point of interest and but cities are kind of like now becoming completely saturated in that direction too so then how do you slice that then if there's an absence Yeah. I don't know. I, but now
1: I feel like, I mean, I've been um, involved in moderating a few discussions about public space and like what next and after COVID and how we recover and stuff like this. And it very much feels like, um, the next realm is that of experience and engagement. Like, okay, we've, we've gone this way and that's sort of real estate. And that's what really limits our ability to do that. And we've kind of gone that way. Um, And so now, in terms of what's the grab or what's the sort of, um, yeah, how do do you direct people around? It's where there are experiences to be had and and a kind of different way of mapping the city or mapping value in the city. Almost super fascinating to hear you talk about it. So, like,
3: Like the absence of something comes in there suddenly, like, oh, what is this empty space in the city? Okay, I'm going to go there. Like, suddenly, because it's so dense, that becomes a value. Um, mm-hmm. like parks and uh, squares and stuff like that. And, you know, London, London's built around these squares. And then in somewhere like Marrakesh, these squares are are important because they direct cool air through the structures, but then they become social hubs. And, yeah, I don't know, there's... there's...
1: But I guess, I mean, just not to necessarily lose that point about like, why Disney chose that image. I mean, there's history as to Walt Disney's own slightly eugenicist and dodgy politics... but but I find it fascinating how the German castle that he chose so Neuschwanstein was the concoction of a crazy syphilitic prince who had fantasies about all sorts of other places have you ever seen inside that castle it's amazing there's like a Moroccan peacock room and and all sorts of it is the real life castle in Germany in Neuschwanstein is a fantasy space and I think it's super telling that the disney castle is this insane concoction of a madman um also with too much power um
11: yeah Yeah, i agree with that i always found it incredible when i lived lived in la and being a white european going to la living in south central to begin with and realizing it was only white person around made my senses quite sharp and i was there in the early 90s and what struck me was there was not just the t- sort of disneyfication of the german castle and in the, in the, the ideal you know it was a straight copy of that you're right Shumi. it was hyper real umberto eco talks about that but the other thing was that you start looking around as a european in la which is so strange so different from what you ex- you can imagine once you you actually live there and you start feeling the place and trying to get the beat of the city is that you look out for European things and they're very hard to find they tend to be maybe hyper real like Disneyland and the medieval and the 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 strange syphilitic German prince's castle and all that sort of thing You, you you then find places like Um, Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills which they try to make like a European street because none of the streets in LA really have a corner. The corners are roded into a park parking bay or parking mall mini mall and you start to look for clues you start to look for European clues and and then there were one or two there but in terms of um, orientating yourself and getting used to the city you adapt to different visual clues. Whether it's a shopping mall, whether it's the mini mall, whether it's the empty space, whether it's a queer crowd is and so on. I just find it, going back to Shumi's original question to you, Greg, on that orientation between the the, the, the antique and the new is kind of interesting.
3: Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's age old, like you could read something like the edifice complex and see how, you know, architecture of power is like something that is explored in, in smaller spaces and grander designs and you look at, you know, the plans for uh, Nazi German, uh, Berlin or whatever, and, and or even like uh, Hussein's Iraq, he passed uh, palaces and stuff like that, like those structures are all kind of revolving around these shows of like great power like oh there's going to be seven towers here to represent but you're designing the likes of sable are are you conscious of things like that it's definitely i mean like (laughs) i think i try to be but there's a point where you just you you you're just like okay i've i've overthought this like i i'm gonna rot my brain thinking about so many different like elements of complexity and i have to I have to trust that I know enough in my brain that like it will instinctively appear on a page (laughs) sometimes I mean there's a definite like balance there where it's like
1: I think that's so true I mean look we all like live in and move around in space and then you read all these theories and kind of learn all these tools that help you appreciate it a different way and to kind of synthesize the knowledge that you know from being a spatial being
12: but isn't it a bit different there for you, Greg? Because yeah, you're working with, uh, Darren recommended someone called Meg Jane Janus, who yeah, you work yeah. with, and she's like specifically there to tell the story of Sable. She And it's like, so she was or helping, like I mean, if you can expand on that a bit more, but.
3: Uh, yeah, so Meg, Meg uh, was helping doing the cultural world building elements of the game. Um, more for like, so I guess the way that we were working together was like uh i was building the kind of more old world and she was building more more current world if that makes sense so there was like we tried to try to intentionally create a like friction between the knowledge of people in the current space and the actuality of what has happened in the previous uh you know the, the the intent of the people who originally built this world so there's like always this misinterpretation over time that occurs um and i mean that's something that you you see take place in archaeology and history all the time where you know they'll uncover some some coin that tells you like oh this part of roman britain was actually totally different to what we expected just just based on like one new archaeology called mm-hmm. finding or like cultural element that's handed down and um we kind of like <laughs> tried to simulate parts of that through like not necessarily communicating everything to each other about like what was made versus what wasn't made but oh, uh,
1: that's
3: fun yeah I mean I think it's something Maybe. I'd like to explore more in the future I don't know if it we'll see we'll see how it that, that sounds uh, as if it's almost starting to mess with time yeah yeah definitely there's like there's these kind of like layers of time throughout and then there's the kind of like current interaction but Ultimately, I'd love to explore that stuff a lot more and a lot more like academically and with detail, but ultimately I've got to like make a game that is (laughs) Okay. Uh, so like, are you saying it, they're fundamentally
12: it, opposed like it can't be fun and academic at the same time not at all no
3: no <laughs> i actually i actually totally think that's not true i just think we don't have the fucking time and we need to get on with it, and Is like, it, the when's
1: it? it's the fun the academia and the money don't forget so that yeah. that's the problem when's it when's it coming
9: out greg when's it coming out when uh, I can't say that's. Uh, <laughs> it looks amazing. Uh, it does. It, uh, it looks amazing. Cool. Yeah. I
1: think yeah. one of the things I was talking about, Steve, in terms of the antique city, whatever. I mean, it's a it's a very simplistic metaphor, you know, but um, I think it's when Greg was talking about um, you know, linear games, maybe, or maybe maybe this is something I just extrapolated from what you were saying, but there was a period of time when you could complete a game in a few hours. If you really yeah. kind of put your mind to it and there's a kind of linear progress to it there's a certain logic to it you can game the game you can kind of figure out what it wants from you um and more and more it's become i, I also think those sorts of systems like in terms of gaming as you were saying once you figure out what it wants from you you can play with it so you can that system's then vulnerable to you messing. Well, with i think it.
11: the linear non-linear thing is is fascinating in game right. Really, really really interesting and that I think th- I think that's I kind of picked up on a, a little bit of what you you were saying earlier and um, You know Let's see if I can put this in another way when I play games with Louie my son who's coming on 16 He doesn't have a PlayStation so he's just playing on the Mac so we've got some a couple of open source games I'm the one who wants to go and explore the world and play in a non-linear way and louis wants to 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 play the story get it done with move on next game yeah and i wonder if the non-linear linear linear thing is a generational
3: thing with gamers or with people i think i think it depends on the type of like some people just want to like there's a constructive experience and then there's a non-constructive experience i think like open world games are, are super popular at the moment. Um, you know, you spend hundreds of hours in a, in a single world and uh, there's a lot of popularity with that. Um, and like, but then there are people who, I mean, it's funny that what you were saying about you wanting to just explore in this more ambient way and your son wanting to explore in this more direct way. But actually, I think there's a lot of like people who don't have as much free time who tend to be of an older generation who want to just bang something out in six hours, four hours, three hours. And then younger people who, I mean, I think especially growing up, uh, not to sound too much like an old man, but like you bought a game <laughs> and you had that game <laughs> and you were stuck with it and that's what you were given and you just had to make the most of it. And it wasn't necessarily even good, but you just kept playing it because whatever it's what you had. Whereas there's now it, I think there's an abundance think... of like free games. And
1: yeah. it's also surely about what you're looking for. Like when I play, games and i'm not that much of a gamer but i certainly don't not only because my reflexes aren't good enough for combat games but um i like exploratory games too or kind of puzzle games or cerebral things where there isn't particularly a competitive aspect to it and there certainly isn't a group aspect to it whereas other people might be playing for validation from their peers so it's about like getting to a certain level of progress or maybe just validation from the game because you're Getting through it at a certain pace, or you're able to. Um, I don't know. I'm not looking for validation in any sense from games. I'm looking for escape from real life. But maybe that's, and uh, maybe that's generational. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah. I think that's where the ambient side comes in, though, right? Like, yeah. if you just want to chill out and like look at some cool stuff and like I don't know, spend time in a the world, then that's more what that sounds like. But I don't know. I don't know. It's kind of like a difference between like a. Sometimes an action film is good and sometimes I'm
6: Yeah, I was know. gonna say it reminds me of the feeling of like whether you kind of go to watch like The Office or you go to watch Ozark or some sort of series that you'll kind of lose your mind in a little bit more so will, will take up kind of like months. your
1: own experience, so and a good game will probably offer both.
3: Yeah. Yeah, but but yeah. some games can't. Some games just have to own what they are and just be like, True. look, I'm gonna offer this and this is, you know, you'll come to me when when, you know, you need the office or you'll come to me when you need, yeah, Ozark or Breaking Bad or whatever.
1: Yes, yeah, certainly when I went through a period of depression, I think maybe mental health is a good um, way to talk about games as well. When I went through a period of sort of total meltdown, I, I remember lots of people suggesting, you know, very spacey sort of games that were relaxing that definitely had no competitive um, element to them, nothing violent, and it was just a sort of um, mindfulness situation i suppose or maybe maybe even the opposite of that maybe something else so i think games in terms of therapeutic uses have been i've i've sort of been reading a bit about that over the past while
11: yeah i think that's a, good, a really good point there there was a game that louis was started playing just at the beginning of lockdown in march and 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 he doesn't play it that much now but i was fascinated by it it was called i think it was subnautica or something and it was all about exploring an underground, i oh, sorry, an underwater world in the future, where you the, the point of the game was actually building in effect a new civilization very, very slowly, or a new su- way of survival or getting past or just getting by. And there was something kind of metaphorical I found with the whole Covid pandemic because it was, there was no other characters in it. It was you and lots of mm, organisms under the sea. It's very lonesome, strange, fascinatingly kind of chilled out game.
12: Well, there's kind of like two, like kind of, yeah, there's like, I mean, thinking like, so like Roger Ebert, the film critic, like famously said that video games could never be considered art because Um, art is about uh, one person transferring their perception onto you and video games are much more kind of like sandbox you you, your input is far more uh, present in that as a media whereas like uh, Todd Howard from Bethesda he said that video games are great because it's the only media where you come away with a sense of pride and accomplishment from it. I mean, maybe he hasn't read David Foster Waller's Infinite Jest kind of thing. I <laughs> like pride having finished that. But the idea is like people still haven't really nailed down what it is. I, I think, think it's that, just
3: a different palette of emotions. Like I yeah. think art is about emotions. Games are good at some things. Films are good at others. Books are good at others. Like it's just a different set of emotions that you can engage with. It's very hard to engage with competitiveness with books. Mm-hmm. It's very very fucking easy to engage <laughs> on that point with greg, <laughs> on that point greg very quick question for you are you a storyteller or an author uh i think i'm a storyteller i wouldn't author no i wouldn't say author or i mean author theory is the one that gets applied a lot to games but i think that's a difficult one we'll to do that again or Aute- theory, like you okay. know, just like the individual, but like I was like Bobby's anything. point about the film
12: in a way, yeah. yeah. But, yeah that like, was what Reggie Ebert said a lot. It's like yeah. there's no authorship there, kind of... yeah. I think
1: I don't know, to an I don't extent, know. That's
3: true, but that's also maybe true. In art, arch- like if you say that's true for games, that's 100% true for architecture, too. Architecture, you have multiple architects working on a project, you have a contractor, you have a builder, you have the client, you have you know. So, our arch- is architecture art? I don't know, do I necessarily give a shit? like. Not particularly, but I think, I think it's about engaging with a palette of emotions and knowing what is good at what. So, like, feeling of exploration, I think, like, that's something that games can be really good at. F- film can also engage with. Like, I've been watching a lot of like travel programs, or like, you know, just whilst I'm in lockdown, trying to like, if so I can get that sense of wonderlust and exploration. And, True
1: film, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I
3: think games can do that too. Like, sure. uh, yeah, yeah. I've heard of it. Uh, yeah.
1: I think there's slightly more agency in games within a certain framework of things that you're supposed to do that you don't necessarily have with other forms of media in quite the same way, like yeah. behave in space and time in games in ways that you can't necessarily in, a, in the experience of watching a film. It's a much more one directional experience in a way, but um,
8: yeah, man,
1: yeah. I'm, I'm gonna have to go. This is so great. Um, so nice to
11: to you. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah. To to Thank you so much. Yeah, me too. Thank you,
8: everyone. It's been yeah. amazing. Thank you very much. Thank you. inviting these guys. It was great. Take to care. To Thank
0: you all. Thanks. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.forthspace.co.uk, where you can see all our past and upcoming events, or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks mixing it in architecture. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture.